I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Welcome to School of Movies. About time. My name is Tim, and this is the year that would change my life forever. Happy New Year! I just didn't know it yet. Tim, my dear son, this is going to sound strange, but there's this family secret that the men in the family can travel in time. This is such a weird joke. It's not a joke. If it's true, which it isn't. Although it is. But if it was, which it's not. Which it is. How would I actually... You go into a dark place, clench your fists, think of the moment you're going to, and you'll find yourself there. complicated year. It's going to be a complicated life. For me, it was always going to be all about love. I'm Tim. I'm Mary. It's my mother's name. I remind you of your mother. Obviously, I should have thought this through more. Could you give me one second? I'm Tim. I'm Mary. I love your eyes. Do you? I love the rest of your face too. I haven't even looked further down, but I'm sure it's all fantastic. I'm sure it'll be better next time. Well done. Some people make a real mess of it the first time. Oh, amateurs. This is one of the best films about time travel ever made, and that is for reasons that we will definitely be going into in depth. It has a peculiar attitude to women for something so filled with the right choices, and we'll be talking about that too. And because it's time travel, we absolutely had to get on our good friend Jesse Ferguson of the Recorded Tomorrow podcast, which is all about that exact same subject. Hello, Jesse. Hello, hello. At the time of the recording, I am planning a book on time travel, and Jesse is helping me to get my brain untangled. And he modestly <laughs> said he's not doing much, but he's doing plenty. Because as it transpires, it's a really difficult story type. So I have <laughs> massive respect for anyone who can put together any time travel story that makes even a lick of sense. So um, thank you, Jesse, for coming on for this one. Happy to be here. Oh, and you're welcome. Thank you by for the way. introducing me to this movie. Exactly. Yeah, you hadn't seen it. And it's like <laughs> I hadn't. I, it it seems why well, I felt like it'd be right up your alley. Oh, well, it absolutely was. I believe this is the first time we've done a film by Richard Curtis, by the way, who usually writes or produces, and appropriately, this 2013 movie is only his third to direct, and it's also his final. He said he might do another one after this, but he hasn't yet. And he did Love Actually. And okay. The Boat That Rocked in 2009, which uh, I actually haven't seen The Boat That Rocked. I think, isn't Bill Nye in that? I feel I like know. he is. So <laughs> I, I'm gonna, because, I mean, it's a it's a trifecta. But I'm gonna sure. go ahead and guess that this is by far the best. Boom. This is Alex from the future. It is by far the best. Unexpectedly, The Boat That Rocked is one of my most loathed films of this year. Good God. We were going to do a quick review on it for Patreon, but it was just me screaming. Uh, the short of it is, that thing I said about it has a peculiar attitude to women, it is so much worse in The Boat That Rocked. So much worse. So, <clears throat> let's start with the setup as to who the characters are, and then get into the thick, tasty, tear-jerking hot pot of the time travel mechanics and its consequences after that. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to hold it together on this one, because there are some bits <laughs> that just 
they're it's really heartfelt and it really it, is. it's you know he, uh, Jesse himself said that he doesn't really cry at movies I do I cry at lots of movies so <laughs> I was in bits um we begin with a 20 something 21 21 year old 21. lawyer yeah. named Tim played by Domhnall Gleeson. And I, I said about Tim to you today, and you went, oh, my God. I was like, I don't think it's that deep, but okay. Yeah. Um, it was originally called, the, the original script apparently was Tim about Tim or Tim something that made a play on the name. Right, so he was called Tim for a reason, yeah. because Tim and time. Um, there are some who call me... Tim. (laughs) (laughs) And Tim lives an idyllic life by the sea in Cornwall uh, with his family. So uh, he's got his dad, played by Bill Nye, his mum, who's never, they're never named. They're called James and Helen. And uh, his mum's played by Lindsay Duncan. And yeah, They, they do name, they do name James once. All right. And I had, I had to go back and look, but yeah, it's, it's. It's when he goes and meets up with Harry the first time. He's like, mm. I'm Tim. Oh, James yes. is son. James Lake's son. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That's the only reason that I knew who that was. Because, right. yeah, I went back to look at the cur- the credits, too, and it's just like, Dad? Dad? Really? I honestly thought that the mum's name was Mary, which is the name of his future wife. And I was like, they they called both the mums Mary? That's something. But uh, well, apparently it's... They make a point of that. It the... is Mary. Like, he even says, that's my mother's name. Oh, ah, so I'm wrong. Okay. In the script it's, that you read. Yeah, it's Helen in the original script. It's Helen in the original script. So, okay, so it is Mary. So That's mm-hmm. worse. That's so much worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, and there is also Kat, played by Lydia Wilson, and she gives an extraordinary performance in this film. We'll definitely She's talk about her in a bit. Uh, the thing I realized what it was, she acts like there's no camera on her. She acts mm-hmm. as just frighteningly naturally, but in a way where she's just this slightly off kilter um, kind of, I suppose, a manic pixie dream girl. But then there's a real spin on that because, like, yeah. she's not there to make a man's life better, and she's thickly involved in the plot for the um, second act. Uh, but we'll we'll come back to her. Uh, Lin, um, Lydia Wilson and Domhnall Gleeson both had minor roles in Never Let Me Go. Right. The one with Andrew Garfield and Keira Knightley. Uh, Keira Knightley. And, and the the type of roles that the young... Who was in An Education? Carrie Mulligan. Uh, Carrie Mulligan, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the kind of roles that the younger people were playing in that, I, I feel like that sense of melancholy that she brings to this... Mm is quite similar to the, the tone of that whole film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically, yeah, his sister Kat's kind of a crazy one, and uh, there's a lot there as well. Uh, but his mum and dad are very, very kind and sweet and kind of eccentric, and he also has an sardonic uncle. Sardonic as hell. Yeah, I sardonic as hell. I, I love that family so much. Th- this is why I said just start with talking about the family, because... These folks are just really instantly lovable in a kind of annoying way because it's like your lives are so fucking perfect. Um, but in a sort of way where you're like, well, you probably grew up with with um, with this much love in your life that, that you're a decent person. It allows us to assess Tim as being able to approach the stuff he approaches with kind of a ethical backbone. And also... The, sorry, just to, to pick up on the thing about the family being as lovable as hell... This is kind of the point of the whole film. Mm-hmm. It's not a uh, they are effortlessly wonderful and lovely and therefore simply to be envied and resented. Mm. 
<laughs> There's also an Uncle Desmond, played by Richard Cordery, who is, I get me brain medicines from the national health <laughs> levels of kooky and British. And I mean, this is one of those films that you could show to Americans and say, all British people are like this, don't you know? And uh, I would imagine a lot of Americans would go, yeah, that figures. It's not true. But, uh, but it's a lovely it's a lovely fantasy to entertain. It's a family that reads to me like it's a family that reads. Yes, um, but it, it reads to me like one that if you look at it from certain angles and if people looked at them from certain other perspectives has or had a lot of problems, but they have also got so much unconditional love going around mm. that they've been able to address them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, they live in Cornwall in this fucking magnificent sort of somewhere between a farmhouse and a mansion on on top of a cliff. It is a grade two listed building. This isn't just a random house. I I realised halfway through I would... I would literally kill to live in that house. What is what as long is as it was a bad two listed building? Oh, I don't sorry. know what that means. Right. Okay, I saw you know something in um, uh, a program on something in uh, Miami, and they were saying we've redecorated this building to how it looked over fifty years ago. <laughs> People are going, no, surely not, no, no one was alive then. Okay, okay. Um, basically, building... I don't know the, the exact ins and outs, but the way buildings work in the in the UK, if they are past a certain age and uh, most of it is still as it originally was, um, then the, the authorities can say, you can't change anything about that building anymore because it has historical significance. And if you do any... That's so appropriate for it, the story. Yeah. And if you do any <laughs> renovations to it, they have to be in keeping with what it looks like before you can't materially change anything and if you buy a right. listed building you still can only do to it what they will allow you to do some people mm, ignore that okay. and get fined lots of money yeah i right, mean right tolkien would love that as a concept mm. the idea i mean they had listed buildings yeah. in his day Once the idea of uh, you know this is as it is and as it was yeah. and it shall remain so once they're listed right. past a certain no more point, progress here thank you then it simply becomes the authorities will now buy this property and maintain it for you you know mm. with all of the above which I like I love the idea of respect for architecture I, I I prefer the idea of respect for humanity and people and actually making sure that everyone has a place to stay but I do love the idea of of keeping certain precious buildings preserved mm. rather than yeah. uh, it, it does come with the caveat that the preservation has to take place as well because otherwise you get mm-hmm. into situations where you've got properties that people aren't allowed to fix that are in decline so people yeah. are living in substandard squalor buildings, yeah. which yeah. is not great so um there are a couple of other uh, side characters and a couple of important characters that we'll talk about as we meet them but we begin uh on a new year's eve party and uh uh Tim is about to find out he has a, a superpower. And uh, right. so so we have the party first, and uh, um, his sister meets this kind of handsome scumbag guy named Jimmy. We'll come back to that later. And oh, he's such a piece of shit. I hate him. It comes around to midnight, and uh, Tim is, you know, hanging around with this girl. I don't think he really knows her that much. She's just sort of a party girl. And then at midnight, he kind of awkwardly, like, uh, shall we? And then shakes her hand. And then she feels sad about that <laughs> afterwards. And he kind of realizes, oh, there was a moment there, and I didn't capitalize on it. And I could have kissed her and should have kissed her. And just, it, it's not even like 
to, to kindle a relationship. This is a girl who wanted to be kissed at midnight and right. clearly is dealing with some of her own stuff at that point. Boy, him it was an opportunity to be decent her, yeah. and he missed it. Yeah. yeah. So the next morning, so it's like the ultimate fucking Sunday at this point. Mm-hmm. New Year's Day is the Sunday of Sundays. And actually on <laughs> this year's New Year's Day, we sat and watched for the first time ever The Big Chill. That is a hell of a lot of a New Year's Day film, folks. It's just a bunch of old school friends hanging out with each other pondering life and love and um mm-hmm. it's uh it's just very relaxed it is but it also gave that sort of feeling of maybe before you launch into all of the new stuff you want to do this year mm. take a little bit of time to review the old really, stuff yeah. so yeah uh mm-hmm. or just the ultimate hangover movie i suppose you could call that as well but uh yeah then his dad bill nye big star of various pirate based films he was in love <laughs> actually as well um, He's so good in this. Couple of those ruddy, awful vampire films. Um, <laughs> he basically tells Tim, "Our family. Well, when I say family, I just mean the men. We'll come back to that. Um, mm-hmm. We can travel through time. We can only go backwards. We can't go forwards, apart from one second at a time, same as everyone else. And what you have to do is go up to a quiet, dark place, usually because you're going to disappear from this reality." and uh, just go in there and think really, really hard about one specific moment, and then you'll kind of walk back to that place. You're effectively butterfly affecting yourself. This is... Right. It's... The the butterfly effects seem to be um, because of some... One specific structure of the film. It was very dependent on his journals. He couldn't keep his head straight, and every time he changed the past, the journals kind of kept track of where he was, so he'd have to find the journals, read about them, think about where he was, and then go back. With this, to to decomplicate things, Tim simply has to think about where he was. Right. Um, Creating an immediate, wait a second, wait, hang on a second. (laughs) Because he beams back to the party and he's in the cupboard. It's like, but you weren't in the closet. (laughs) I I had that exact question. Like, how did he get into the cupboard, into the closet in the past? Like, did he just vanish from the party or did it somehow like, I don't know, he, he he subconsciously is like, I need to go away for a second and then got into the closet so that he could appear there. Also, if there are he, no answers to this question. He needs to think himself to a particular point in his life yeah. when he was not near any cupboards, closets, toilet cubicles, wardrobes or other people. Or... Right. Because, I mean, basically, the uh, if he didn't warp out of his i mean it makes more sense if he warps into standing in front of someone and basically kind of blinks yeah, and blinks like, into right. his own head yeah that it, would make more he's sense. leaping effectively yes. he's his consciousness is not jump- effectively that is exactly what he's doing okay his consciousness is jumping back in time into his brain then yeah and effectively he's leaving his let's call it his current self his present self yeah in the closet so that when he goes back he jumps he has back a place into to jump the closet into, yeah. into his own body in exactly the same place as he was when he left it so then literally the only reason that you need to go into somewhere dark and enclosed is so that nobody else sees you your freeze f- your empty flesh carapace dribbling on the floor <laughs> exactly um Except for the fact that he would actually jump back to the same instantaneous second, so there wouldn't actually be any period of him not being there. Uh, correct. Right. Yes. I, yeah. I had just assumed that the dark place was so that you could concentrate. But yeah, yeah it, it, it would have made more sense to just have him jump into the body. And I, they kind of dropped the closet thing. It, like, the, the 
the like coming back in the closet only seems to happen when it's narratively important. Yeah. But the the like the story this is one of those times when the story is so good that the mechanics don't matter. Bingo. Yeah. It's the mechanics are kind of loose and woolly and there's several times when they they uh, you ask questions of them and we're gonna. Uh, but um <laughs> <clears throat> while writing my own I I realized and researching for my own I realized that every single time travel story has a balancing act and that is between the science and the emotion. And you get um really, really emotion-heavy uh, movies uh, where the science of it is just kind of, let's don't ask questions and let's not think too hard about this, how this actually works. And that would be about time. Um, and then you get the opposite where it's don't get emotions involved with this thing. And then you get primer. And it's so fixated on the mechanics that there there isn't a lot of space for yeah. emotional development in yeah. the story. But it is, and you'll meet people who tell you that Primer is absolutely the sci-fi movie, and that ultimately comes down to them being really comfortable with no emotion being involved it's in it at all. Entirely personal yeah. preference. If that's if that's mm-hmm. their thing, then that is absolutely fine. I'm glad you like a movie. <laughs> um, I'm glad the, anyone likes a movie. But the the thing to remember, and I'm glad with this, that movie exists. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of Primer either, but I'm really glad that it exists. Yeah, Uh, We have to have something to name that's pure science when it comes to science. (laughs) The other end of the scale, yeah. Yeah. But ultimately it is worth remembering that Richard Curtis is so uninterested in the ins and outs of the time travel for this Mm -hmm. uh, story that the time travel is incidental. He started with the message of the story and worked backwards. That's the true. only reason exactly. there is time travel in it is because it was necessary to facilitate for the story the, he wanted the message, to tell. Yeah. Well, um, I actually kept a log of every single time he goes back in time. There are 23 occasions. I may have missed wow. one or two. There is, in fact, one that I didn't list, which is later on he says, I know the way to the hospital. And that's because they deleted a scene where it was just, he was arsing around on Abbey Road, helping out people, taking photographs, while Rachel McAdams was going, I'm about to have a baby in the car. <laughs> And uh, so I'm not logging that one. An- but Another small point about the original script, she was pretending. She was pretending what? to test him to what? make sure he knew the way to the hospital. What? In that deleted scene. What? What? <laughs> that's worse. You see how that's worse, right? Yes. I absolutely do. <laughs> okay. So, time travel number one. After his dad says, you'll love this, and uh, gives him the uh, uh, premise. He says, right, I'll go upstairs and I'll do that, and I'll come downstairs and call you a fucking liar. And You're going to be in so much trouble. Yeah. Um, they, they don't... Uh, they, uh, the dialogue in this is just, it's really lovely to, to, to listen to back and forth. It's This is an odd moment for me, because I had the same moment with my father when I just turned 21, and after it, my life was never the same. So I approach it pretty um, nervously. Okay. When you're ready, it's all very mysterious. Uh, right. Tim, my dear son, uh, the... Uh, The simple fact is the men in this family have always had the ability to, this is going to sound strange, be prepared for strangeness, get ready for spooky time. Uh, But there's this family secret, and the secret is that the men in the family can travel in time. Well, more accurately, travel back in time. We can't travel into the future. This is such a weird joke. It's seriously not a joke. So you're saying that you and 
granddad and his brothers could all travel back in time. Absolutely. And you still do? Absolutely. Although it's not as dramatic as it sounds. It's only in my own life. I can only go to places where I actually was and can remember. I can't kill Hitler or shag Helen of Troy, unfortunately. Okay, stop. Um, if it's true, uh, which it isn't. Although it is. Although it isn't, obviously. But if it was, which it's not. Which it is. Which it isn't. But if it was, how would I actually... The how is the easy bit, in fact. You go into a dark place. Big cupboards are very useful, generally. Toilets at a pinch. Then you clench your fists like this. Think of the moment you're going to, and you'll find yourself there. After a bit of a stumble and a rumble and a tumble. Wow. Is as good a reaction as any. I think I plumped for fuck, but it was the 70s. No, this is so obviously a joke. It's not a joke. Why would I lie to someone I'm fairly fond of? Okay. But when I come back downstairs after standing in a cupboard with my fist clenched, you're going to be in so much trouble. Well, let's see, shall we? Mm. Oh, and Tim, try and do something interesting. So much trouble. I mean it, really. This movie is painfully middle class. Middle class English, like there's this kind yeah, of... Bear in mind, when we say middle class, we don't mean middle class. Mm. We're middle class. Yeah? Like this is like, you're leaning heavily on the upper middle class Upper here. middle class. Well, basically it's like, <laughs> what could be better than just spending time with your family and we've got everything we need. Yeah, you have got everything you need. Actually, Some of us need to make rent. There is one key line in this that outlines the difference between the type of middle class in this film and actual, like, proper middle middle class. Yeah. Which is when uh, Domhnall Gleeson says when the kids come along, it's amazing how quickly you have to move into a place that you can't afford mm. um, because mm. you need somewhere bigger. Now, when he says can't afford, yeah. he doesn't actually mean can't afford. He means, right. well, it's really pricey, but we can still eat as well. Yeah. There He's is not also... going to be doing that thing which we did in 2011, where it was like, honey, could you bring a lettuce home? I'm afraid we only have 11 pence left in our bank Precisely. account. Precisely. There are right. times <sighs> when you live somewhere that you literally can't afford, meaning that you can't pay rent and also eat. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, the first <laughs> the first jump back uh, is uh, remember that party girl that we mentioned before. He jumps back into Polly his consciousness. Is her name, oh, Polly! I'm sorry. I, there, there are there are a lot of people with uh, a, a lot of names in this film, and uh, yes. I, I just I'm shit with names. That is one thing I have to note down. <laughs> um, I'd be terrible at time traveling because I keep forgetting everyone's names. Yeah. Although, as Willow pointed out when watching the credits, there are so many examples of so and so at this age, so and so at this age that there are. Lots of right. people with the same name. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> very true. So uh, very simple. He kisses the girl who really wanted to be kissed on New Year's uh, on uh, Old Lang Syne, and uh, then he jumps back to his dad and goes, "Wow, you're actually telling the truth." So it becomes a case of what what would I want to change? And then Margot Robbie comes to stay for two months, <laughs> L- like what happens in real life. <laughs> of course. What the fucking hell? 
I mean, who hasn't had to deal with the summer with with Margot Robbie and romantic tension? Honestly, um, come on. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, basically, it happened every summer for me. Mm-hmm. Also, in my were, Cornish mansion, there's so, a grade two listed building. I'm going to stop you there because you were so <laughs> eager to skip over and get to Margot Robbie arriving, which I completely understand, mm-hmm. by the way. It's entirely acceptable. Um, but you've <laughs> you've bounced right over the entire precept of the film, which is when. Tim finds out about this mm-hmm. and his father says to him, you've got to think really hard about what you actually want out of life. And that is the whole setup for the film. And it, they, mm-hmm. they discuss it a little bit and what it basically... And then by the time it gets to the end, his father's like, well, you haven't learned it. Okay, so let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but the, the, what he means is observe what's going on around you and and look at what you actually want to change. Right. They discuss the possibility of money. Mm-hmm. They discuss the possibility of um, a life of ease and not having to work. Um, and they discuss the possibility of love. And ultimately, I think what, the, what Curtis is doing here is just setting up this sense of the... Th- most of the stuff that we generally think we have to pursue is actually in the name of getting the thing we really want. Hmm. Hold back on what this film is actually trying to tell us until we actually get to that point in the film. No, no, I get it. But that line just is important for setting that up. Thank you. You're absolutely right. I do do appreciate that Dad um, sort of dismisses the money option almost out of hand. That's because like you that, have it. <laughs> right. That's the right. That's the first thing that that uh, Tim says. He's like, well, I mean, money, obviously. And and his dad's like, no, you know, I think he his exact words were, I've I've never met a truly happy rich person. Yeah. No, that I loved as a as a line. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I just uh, I I saw, like when I see particularly um, kind of au fait re- uh, responses to, you know what, money doesn't make you happy. I always feel like Phoebe, Rachel, and Joey in that episode where they all go out to yes. dinner and Joey with his teeny pizza. And it's... Uh, if it, I get it with fewer ingredients, is it any cheaper? <laughs> what are these, like famous chickens? Um, <laughs> so yeah, ultimately, it's, uh, that's, that's where that line uh, comes from. You, know, you, you mm-hmm. don't need to worry about money. I think Monica says that, and Rachel acerbically replies, that's because you have it. As in, Rachel's right. a waitress working for tips. Mm-hmm. Now, we could go on all day about friends and the fact that they're living in these absurd apartments... <laughs> For all of those uh, um, scenarios. But ultimately, that is still uh, a relevant episode because there will always be financial disparity. Mm. But there is is a lot... While there is money, there will be financial disparity. But there is a lot in this movie, and, uh, you know, cynics would say there's a lot in all of Richard Curtis's movies, about privilege. Mm. And ultimately, there is uh, there is the privilege of family connections knocking around. There is the privilege of, of money in the sense that it's okay for these people to spend without thinking about it too much. No, they can't right. go out and buy a yacht, but they again, they don't have to think, do I have enough money to buy a lettuce? Obviously, we haven't, you know. <laughs> I will have a cup of the cucumber soup. And take care. <laughs> I'll have and a I'll have a side salad. Uh, what would you like that on the side of? Uh, how about just next to my water? <laughs> Why have we internalized this one episode? No, um, but there's there's also the privilege of having prearranged employment. 
Um, mm-hmm. this, uh, this job that Tim goes into seems like something that's been set up because of connections and certainly his ability to live with, mm. um, his with dad's Harry. writer friend yep. yeah. Yeah, is, um, automatically got a place to stay. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. a who, you know. So, um, and, and fundamentally underpinning all of this, and I know that this is something that's going to be different for all the people involved in what I'm about to say, the privilege of living in London cannot be underestimated yeah. the the fact which that you interestingly have... ties in with cat later on yes there's mm-hmm. yeah exactly so it's not as if these things don't go unaddressed but ultimately if you live in london you've got access to cheap regular transport you've got access to cheap she said uh, okay it's seven pound fifty if you want to go anywhere. Okay, when can I go one cheap, stop down the line? Seven pound fifty. Can I go a hundred stops down the line? Seven pound fifty. Okay, cheap then is not <laughs> what I mean. But ultimately, if you are used to growing up somewhere where there is no public transport, yeah. cheap or otherwise, oh, yeah. you own a car right. or you don't leave your house. Yeah. Um, the uh, the you've got transport, you've got um, theatre, you've got restaurants, you've got. Mm. Things that are open past six o'clock at night, you've yeah. got there is stuff going on that if you live outside that cultural bubble, you just don't have it. Not because it's ridiculously expensive, because it doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist, yeah, right? It's not there. So, um, back to spooging on Charlotte's back. Um, the- <laughs> <laughs> I told you you wanted to race to this bit. Look. <laughs> um, Anyway, sorry, Charlotte is is Margot Robbie, this this actually nice young lady who uh, is uh, visiting a f- uh, cousin of... She's Jimmy's cousin. Jimmy. She's Jimmy uh, the shit. Cousin. Jimmy she the shit. So uh, she's staying for two months, and uh, first off, um, Tim's... Uh, well, in a deleted scene, he, he sort of meets her multiple times and makes an ass of himself and then sort of rewinds that. But they kind of honed in uh, on... Um, he, she says, oh, can you put suntan lotion on me? And then he first off just... Blah, blah, all over the back. And um, then goes back, ch- tries it again, and just is a little more careful with it. And effectively, this becomes his do-over mechanic. And a lot of the film is him going, fuck that up, let me just go, and then do it again. And it's a little bit Groundhog Day-ish. Then he asks her on the last day of her stay if she's interested in him. Uh, And it makes a very affable, almost courtly uh, voicing of his intentions. And I actually wrote down, this film is about a man at gentle war with his own Englishness. (laughs) (laughs) we were watching it with willow and uh, they pointed out that british people you could drop a bowl of scalding hot soup in their lap completely ruining their penis and testicles and they would apologize to you for it and i figured that's a little bit of a a, uh, an exaggeration but it's not far off i think um i think that, that there's at least one time in this where he does something really good and is complimented on it and says sorry I was like, what? (laughs) But at the same time, that makes absolute perfect sense. I've done the fucking same. How very British. Yeah. Um, And uh, the next thing... So, yeah, so he asks if she's interested, and she says, hmm, you're asking me on the last day. That feels a little bit almost dismissive. So he goes, all right, so I should have asked you earlier. Jumps back... Yep. If, if I can cut in here, she specifically says the last day was never going to work. Yeah. And that's important. For the next mm-hmm. bit. <laughs> then he jumps back to, uh, is it a month beforehand? So he's halfway through. 
something like that. Yeah, and that gives has given them time to get to know each other, so it's not too soon, and it's it gives them plenty of time to really get to know each other uh, for it's the next month. It's probably post suntan lotion. Yeah, and there's there's a kind of a almost a futility to this because effectively. Um, he'd have to still jump back into his body and he'd only then have the memories of, of having done that stuff. He doesn't get to do the visceral I mean, stuff. He wouldn't have to. Like, there's nothing saying that he has to jump back. They, they, they never is that level of, of uh, restriction, is there? He, he never always, tests it. He always jumps back to the same place regardless of how much time he had to spend in the yeah. past changing the thing he wanted to change. Yeah. Well, right. And, I mean, that's assuming that he decides to jump back anyway. There's there's no reason that he couldn't theoretically just jump back and, and then live up to the point where he would have jumped back. Yeah. Yeah, which he'll know because he'll go, I've just got to go in the cupboard for a second. Back in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and I, honestly, I felt like um, uh, there were there were various unspoken things that could have affected it. But then you're absolutely right. Curtis doesn't care about clever tricks and science and things. The only thing right. I would say is that if he spends too long in the past, he's going to get to a point where he now wants to change something else. But now he's jumping back from a point where yeah. he's already back and it's all going to get very shoelaces tied together. Tangled. Indeed. And ultimately, Maybe. it seems like Tim wants to keep this as simple as possible for Tim's sake. Which is very Because Tim can barely get his head around this. Yeah. So he jumps back to a month ago and says, so I'm, I'm interested some basically the same kind of speech a little bit more confident this time because uh he knows she does like him to some degree and she says hmm maybe wait till the last day and he's like what just which kind of it doesn't necessarily paint a particularly nice picture of charlotte i said she's a a nice girl but it's it seems like um this is a little bit sexy blondes am i right yeah a little, little bit. A little bit. It, it struck me. So I want to give her the benefit of the doubt, but it, it, it seems right. remarkably contrary without even knowing she's being contrary. Yeah, it, it seems to me like I want to assume that she was trying to let him down gently when yeah. she said the last day was never going to yeah. work. Yeah. And that she was trying to kind of put things off mm. when so that she didn't have to. Like, it felt like she was trying not to hurt him both times, yeah. I yeah. think. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, it is very difficult to uh, uh, to tell someone the truth, especially when you're a woman, because they might kill you. Um, yeah. But it's a Richard Curtis film, so no. Mm-hmm. He doesn't live in that reality. <laughs> right. He goes to stay in London with Harry, played by Tom Hollander, who is a angry, swearing um, playwright. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> and he's an artist and very passionate. And uh, <laughs> he, he has this kind of like uh, earthy, I do not give a fuck about you kind of uh, sensibility to him. You may remember him from the middle two parts of the Caribbean. Uh, oh, sorry, not even middle. Now there's a fifth, the second and third parts of the Caribbean films. Oh, yes. Also including Bill Nye here in those two. Oh, yeah. He was the, the guy from the East India Trading Company. He was. He was Total right. villain. Like worse than Davy Jones. Way worse. Yeah. The meat of this film is the uh, relationship um, between Tim and a lady named Mary, played by Rachel McAdams. And he meets her in a restaurant where they turn all the lights out, so everyone has to basically have a kind of a conversation in the dark while they're eating. So anyway, it's this conversation <laughs> where all you can really see is some uh, gl- some light glinting off glasses. And uh, then when they come out, it turns out that the uh, um, two girls that uh, he and his idiot friend have been talking to uh, are... Somehow, Rachel McAdams and Vanessa Kirby. And Vanessa Kirby. 
the beauty in this film is off the chain. Uh, Vanessa Kirby has... Uh, it's not exactly a thankless task. She's she's great in this movie. She doesn't have a huge amount to do, but every single line she was given, she just gave it like 180%. Fringe is perfect. Fringe is the best bit. Lilith! We have to go! I found a communist dodgy friend is about to assault me. Okay, okay, I'm, cu- I'm coming. I mean, we've already seen Vanessa Kirby in Hobson Shaw kicking wholesale ass. But at the same time, in Mission Impossible, uh, whichever the sixth one was, the Renegade cut, Rogue Nation, <laughs> the Snyder cut. Oh God, I don't know that the 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 one with Henry Cavill, the one where he like right, goes right, boom, right, boom right. Yeah. with his oh, arms. Uh, yeah, Fallout. Yeah, Fallout, and she does yeah. this astonishing, like incredibly elegant um, Vanessa Redgrave uh, style performance because she's supposed to be the daughter of Max. And she I fucking out. Seen Fallout. Is it? Is it, it worth? It's worth it for Henry Cavill having quite a large amount of screen presence, and Vanessa Kirby out acting Tom Cruise, like outshining him in the room, just turning up in a white dress and going, "Oh, Mr. Hunt," and like, you're like "Whoa, <laughs> Jesus! How old is this girl?" But she's just got this like otherworldly presence to her. She's amazing. Anyway, I thought you were going to say it's worth it for Henry Cavill having a rather large mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you who it wasn't worth it for. Five million dollar mustache. But We're getting off track here in a time money. travel story, which is a bad idea. I really, really loved the conversation here. The, yeah. the in this in this restaurant, the the idea that I mean the. The novelty of it is fun, where we're just kind of listening to this conversation in the dark. But it, it tells you, it does a really good job of cementing the chemistry between Tim and Mary, yeah, uh, and the anti-chemistry between uh, Jay and Joanna. 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 Yeah. Yes, thank you. Between Jay and Joanna, the fact that they're completely incompatible because Jay's an idiot, <laughs> and and but but then the fact that the that that Mary and Tim are just, they're like having the best nights of their lives, just having so much fun and really, really playing off each other and have just instant mm. great chemistry. And I so, love that. So it's a really lovely night and uh, he doesn't, does is he not get her number? But he it doesn't, gets, it, he does. it doesn't he really even matter. At the end of this night. Because here's the thing. He's a decent guy. And then when he gets home, he finds out that his um, uh, friend, the playwright just had a fucking shit night. And uh, one of the, um, uh, acting judges on stage in his legal drama play forgot his lines and the entire auditorium sat in stunned silence as and I never say this, the prompter forgets his fucking job which is to feed you the lines It, it almost seems like they didn't have a prompter Well don't you think you might want to get a prompter? I would I would assume that was a thing that happens. They've but. had them since Shakespearean times and before. I think they do have one because there's a moment where they cut to some guy in the wings with a headset and a microphone and he's wildly gesticulating at Richard E. Grant. And he's doing and nothing. And he's just not... Anyway, is, not we've kind of given away the game here. Basically, this was Sorry. the most amazing night of Tim's life, at least in terms of meeting a girl who just vibes with him. But he sacrifices it for his friend and housemate so that they can he can basically have a decent showing of his play and feel good and not completely crushed and feel like his whole career is worthless. So he goes back and... 
tells the dearly departed Richard Griffiths maybe, you know, some of those lines you might want to learn them. And the most incredibly accurate response to this from any stage actor was, oh, fuck off! you young upstart. And then he starts to learn his lines and then gets them right on stage. But then Richard E. Grant, also from Withnell and I, turns up and on, on stage and forgets his lines. Which I assumed that that he just that Tim went to the wrong door yeah. the first time. Like it, that wasn't the right actor. That 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 uh the first guy, I apologize, I don't know his name, but uh, Griffiths. Um, Griffiths, yeah, like he was always going to remember the line, and it was Richard E. Grant that was yeah. the one who screwed it up both nights. And he just completely just goes like white as a sheet on stage. And then Domino Gleason turns up with those cards out of uh, Love he Actually. Does the Love Actually cards again. <laughs> I was just thinking that. I, I don't even think that's a mistake. I think it's like, oh, everyone loved that bit in Love Actually, so we're just right. going to do that here. And he sort of feeds Richard his lines that way, doing the prompter's job. But that requires two jumps back in time to uh, uh, to get that actually working. And then Harry ends up with a great review, uh, guilty of being an excellent playwright. Um, but that means that his night with Mary is gone. So he has to somehow find her some other way and then somehow insinuate himself within her life without coming off like a weirdo and a creep. And to or do coming off like a weirdo and creep and then just going back and changing. It. Indeed. To his credit. I think one of the best things about Tim as a time traveller is he doesn't plan and scheme and work out exactly what to do. You know how Phil Connors is like, I love how the sunlight hits the buildings in Rome um, to try and get into uh, Rita's um, pants. And he, he in, in Machiavellian fashion, orchestrates a whole day of setup to try to, to, to win her several times over, in fact. We'll be covering Groundhog Day, definitely, and I'm fairly certain Jesse will be with us. Um, but yeah, that's not Tim's game. He's hapless and fucks it up all the time. I- and it's actually better because it's like he's improvising yeah. as opposed to, I will say precisely this, and then delivering those perfectly memorised lines. Yeah, I think there is a particular reason for that, though, that goes with the, the character of who he is, not just in the sense that we need to not think that he's a, a, a manipulative, devious git who yeah. plans everything ahead of time, but because he really seems to struggle to get his head around thinking fourth dimensionally. Mm. So really, it's he seems to just use it to give himself another chance to have a go at something. Mm, yeah. But he he just intends to have another go at it, not to um, get granular about what he's going to change and how. This is why it right. feels so Groundhog Day because it all plays into the the central theme of the movie, which yeah. we'll get to at the end. Um, right. But yeah, yeah. He, just, he just takes a bunch of mulligans, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Sometimes uh, do, several in a row. Yeah. I do want to uh, step back just a second to the the night of the play versus the, the dinner. Mm. Um, in my mind, I actually found that was a like one of the times and we'll come back to this a bunch of times. But one of the great things I love about Tim is that he consistently proves himself to be just a a. a platonic ideal of a decent human yeah in the fact that he went back and saved his you know saved his friend's play and didn't it didn't even occur to him when he did that that he was going to be sacrificing his date because he goes to like 
at the after party of the play, he goes to call Mary and it's only then that he realizes when her number isn't in his phone anymore, mm-hmm. that he realizes that he lost that date. Yeah. That's so again, being hapless plays in his favor Absolutely. just because right. he goes and, from his good bone. Yeah. And that's right. An and Im- then the, the, the point here, and this is like where he fundament, he fundamentally makes a choice not to go back and redo the date yeah. because the play is too important for Harry mm-hmm. and now decides that he has to figure out how to how to re-meet her and reintroduce himself in a way that he that he can still that, that Harry's day still goes well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And this sequence also outlines two really important visual uh, pieces of information for us. One is that, well, this isn't exactly visual, but uh, one is that an important lesson here is that you still have to make decisions. You still have to make choices about where you're going to be at any given moment. You don't get to have your cake and eat it with all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second thing is that with the phone, as you said, Jesse, he gets Mary's number in his phone at the end of the night. When he goes to call her after the after party of the play, it's not there. That shows us he can't take artifacts back with him. Mm. Although he can take people as it turns out <laughs> but we'll come to that in a minute but even if he did phone her uh, without the without her having given it to him she'd be like who's this yep and, and how did just you get like my number? he had memorized her number yeah, yeah. so um again uh, what what plays in tim's favor is that he is not so fucking smart and so great at, at thinking about this fourth dimensionally that he's able to cleverly outthink the mm-hmm. circumstances that he gets put under. He ultimately has to go with his heart every time. And by and large, he does the right thing every time, by and large. Uh, there's... <laughs> huh. uh, so he, he goes to an art gallery, finds her eventually, because he knows that she particularly likes this particular... Uh, it's like a Kate Moss exhibit. It's, she Kate, Moss. Like it's Kate Moss. Yeah. Um, it's an exhibit of her photographs. Indeed. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, she mentions that she... Well, they go for a, a dinner with him and Vanessa Kirby. There Again, Vanessa Kirby just, like, taking all the spotlights away, drinking this giant pink milkshake, <laughs> which apparently the restaurant itself didn't have pink milkshakes. They were just going to give her chocolate milkshake. No, 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 it must be pink. So they <laughs> blended what she described as uh, strawberry yogurt and really off milk. And it's like, the restaurant didn't have milk that wasn't off Go across the street and get some milk. This is Vanessa Kirby, you barbarians. <laughs> or ice cream or something. Just, just make a milkshake or just, just and put the ice. strawberry yogurt in it. So, yeah, again, right. her acting chops, she never wrinkled up her nose and went, I'm not drinking this. But um, also on the uh, commentary track, um, the, the words, and I was listening to this with uh, Willow, uh, were, um, it's not creepy because, and I said to Willow, it's not creepy because is like saying, I'm not racist, but <laughs> what? whatever exactly. you say afterwards, you know, it's not really even for you to say. And here's the thing as well. Saying it's not creepy because means you recognise there's the possibility for it to have been creepy. Mm. And if the person who's watching it thinks it's creepy, mm-hmm. whatever you're about to say is not going to disabuse them of that notion. Like, if it hasn't occurred to them that it was creepy, you don't need to say it. But Curtis defined it as, it's not creepy because he loves her. I'm sure the dude out of Perfect Blue also loved her. <laughs> you might just get away with, it's not creepy because she loves him. Mm-hmm. Still. We'll, we'll cover the uh, stuff regarding Mary 
in due course. Uh, Right, so uh, (laughs) she went to a... She's now hitched. She's... Well, not got hitched. She's now attached. She has a boyfriend named Rupert that she made just a few days ago. And uh, he asks when specifically and then runs away like a creep. And... (laughs) Beams himself back to this party, finds her. And also, like, he finds her in a way that is maintained. This is, from now on, the way they met. And mm-hmm. he says to v- Vanessa Kirby's party, she's like, these are hot dogs, they're rubbish, and I made them. And then she says, who are you? Uh, I'm one of Mary's friends. And then she's like, oh, that's cool. And then he goes and finds Mary. All it takes, all it takes is for Joanna to have a chat with Mary afterwards and go, I, I met your friend Tim, he's very nice. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he is. He does seem really nice. Where did you meet him? At the party. Okay, now we've got a fucking yep. problem. Mm, there is that. They're, but they never ask each other because they're ladies. Anyway, moving Again, forward. he's not thinking fourth dimensionally. <laughs> just to skip back slightly, the um, setup for the... He could just have said, I'm a total weirdo, I came in off the street. And she'd have gone, oh, cool. Yeah, uh, these exactly. are my hot dogs. Even, like, <laughs> even just gone and and said to any person there be like hey what's your name and then when joanna asked him be like oh i'm here with tom like you know tom brought me or whatever even so that's a paper trail but again i'm not tim uh, so like, I, I would have like, thinking about I would have worked out more. I wouldn't have just gone. I'm her friend. The scene. <laughs> I'm just gonna be like her friend. Funny. The scene in the art gallery where he is waiting for Mary to turn up. Yeah. And there's a point. It's where a montage. Technically, is, he waits yeah. a long time. He does wait a long time. And Cat turns up to day, keep him company. Cat, being his sister, we mentioned at the beginning. Cat turns up to keep him company, exactly. This is where the seeds are first sown for everything in the garden of Cat is not all lovely. And also, what Tim specifically, but her family in a broader context, might be doing to unconsciously contribute to this. Mm -hmm. Twice, she mentions something that is going wrong in her life. She mentions that she's fighting with Jimmy, and she mentions that she's lost her job. Kicked out of her job. And he doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't give her space to elaborate. He doesn't give her any room to talk about what's going on with her because he is so fixated on Mary. It's a brush away moment. Mm. It's so brief. And it's not the point of the scene. But it really does underpin that fundamentally not being able to share what's going wrong for her may well be why she's going down that path. Also, if you live in London and you lose your job and you tell your brother and he lives in London and he doesn't say, I hope you find a new one. Like, first thing, just like, just you don't worry, we will find you one. Just the first thing a brother should say, a sister should say, an uncle should say, anyone who also lives in London and can help you. Yeah. It's a, it's a serious deal if you. <laughs> so, um, no, you're absolutely right there. People are not um, uh, closest and nearest and dearest, not uh, close enough to cat. Cat also doesn't share enough. She'll report things, but she won't talk too much mm. about what it feels like yeah. and, and what how she's changing her views. Mm. There's, I have all sorts of interpretations of Cat, none of which are really all that relevant to the story, so I'm mm. not going to go into them in detail here, <laughs> but um, but yeah. I'd like to hear interpretations of Cat, but okay, if you don't want to... Well, if you, I'll, I'll see what comes up. Okay, so um, uh, because he now finally charms uh, Mary for a second time, uh, they uh, end up um, going to bed with each other, and uh, there's two do-overs here. The first time, he kind of fumbles with her bra, which opens at the front. The s- then after they've finished having sex, he's just like, excuse me for a minute, goes away, comes back... Um, 
and does a do-over again and just kind of like flicks her bra open and she's like oh you know bras and i noted uh, rachel mcadams is a great actress there was a slight note of oh you know but like nervousness about that like uh, this is special to me, but I don't want this to just be like you are actually this Lothario and you haven't told me. Also, um, front catch bras are rare enough that it is possible that she wears one to fox people on purpose. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, that not definite by any means. She might just prefer them, but they're not a common thing. Yeah. Okay. And then the third time... He just jumps on her. He goes after her like she's made out of ham. Jesus. (laughs) The irony is he does their first time three times. The middle one is actually the best. Yeah. In my opinion. Which he could actually have learned a little from there. Like maybe don't do over everything. Sometimes you got it just right. And that um, that was a good way of indicating that he's not quite there yet. Mm. Uh, But um, it's, it's, it's very subtle and he never seems to pick up on that verbally. <clears throat> uh, then uh, Mary's uh, parents are going to come over unexpectedly and... Uh... Oh, God. Okay, okay. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, do, do, do they know I exist? Uh, yeah, I've mentioned something like you, but nothing very specific. Um, oh, yeah, and they're quite conservative, so maybe not those pants. Do, do I live here? Oh, definitely not. Okay, um, are we having sex? Uh, it... Yeah, but not oral. I wasn't going to mention oral. Okay, good. Don't. <laughs> How did you think that was going to come up? Could you help me with this, please? I don't know. It, if it does, just deny it completely. But who's going to bring it up? Your dad, Tim, had any cunnilingus with my daughter recently? Well, you never know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. There. Yeah. Oh, they are. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. right. Okay. Dad. <laughs> Mom. Hi, honey. Oh, uh, this is Tim. Hello, sir. Ma'am. Hi. Well, should we uh, come back when you haven't got any company? Or? Oh, well, that would be uh, quite difficult because Tim actually uh, lives here. Really? With you? Yes. Yeah, but no oral sex, I promise you. I just, I wonder why she said that to him, knowing who he is and how he frames things, especially when nervous. So we did skip over another montage. I, I kind of want to call out that this movie does montages really, really well. It does. The, it helps like, that they have after, a fantastic soundtrack behind each one. Yeah. After their first night, they make really clever use of the subway tunnel. And it's just this one single set that they're coming in and out of in various places with different outfits and different costumes and different people and under different circumstances. And it it does a really, really great job of establishing and cementing their relationship Mm -hmm. and and like how it's grown. And that like now Kit, you know, Kit Kat knows knows Mary and really likes her because she's like kissing, 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 kissing her on the way down. And you see them in the costumes and you get to see like cat walk back in her costume, but she's sad. So we have another bit of like, we're starting to see the cracks in her relationship. And they establish all of this in the course of about two minutes with one song and one set, and it's just brilliantly done. Yeah. yeah, It is very economical, and it also reinforces the concept of a relationship being about the 
the collection of small moments and mm-hmm. daily interactions that go on between the people involved in it rather than it being about the big dramatic mm. scenes. Right. We actually have a really good balance here because I'm looking at all the time travels and you're going, no, 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 hold back because they're also living life. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the point of the movie. <laughs> Getting that balance. Um, There's, there is actually, speaking of just flipping back, um, there's an important moment at the end of the party mm-hmm. when he's Which met party? Mary. The so party where he's gone back in time and he's gone to Joanna's flat and met Mary officially for the first yeah. time. She, he intercepts Rupert and makes sure that uh, Mary yeah. meets him before Rupert and she agrees that he's a dickhead. Yes, indeed. Um, and he does appear to be so. But the... After that, there's this... There's a scarf on. And anyone who wears a scarf in movie language is a bastard. There's a really sweet element to this where she asks him to walk her back to her car. Yeah. But she doesn't Mm -hmm. tell him that her car is parked outside her house. Nice. So... Effectively, she's asking him to walk her home. But she's not being completely upfront about it. And this, combined with the deleted scene where Mary pretends she's in labour so mm-hmm. that she can test to see whether he knows the route to the hospital. Oh my God, she's testing him all along. But that, the fact that Mary is a little bit manipulative herself, mm. not in a horrible way, just in a, mm-hmm. I need to do certain things in order to get to certain sure outcomes, yeah. is not wildly dissimilar to what he's doing. Yeah. And it evens right. the scale a little bit, because this that could become an issue. And uh, then he meets uh, Margot Robbie again, and Margot Robbie introduces, remember this is a 2013 movie, uh, says, this is my girlfriend, Tina. And the first thing he does is say, oh, Jake, great, okay, because I uh, honestly thought that it, uh, my, the re- your rejection of me was, uh, was going to uh, make me feel bad about myself for the rest of my life. But now it turns out you're gay and I didn't have a chance. Um, okay, okay, right. You've made two grievous errors, both of you. Firstly, Tim, A, just because she has a girlfriend does not mean she's gay. B, Margot Robbie's character Charlotte. It's 2013. You must understand that if you say, this is my girlfriend, then people are going to assume that you mean girlfriend as opposed to a friend who is a girl. Do you say, this is my man friend? People if you in- said, this is my boyfriend, and people are like, oh, that's cool. Uh, so how long have you guys been going out? We haven't been going out. He's a boy who's my friend. <laughs> Specifically people in Britain. Uh, Charlotte and Tina are both British and referring to a platonic female friend as a girlfriend is very much an American thing. Mm. So the audience would probably, like an American audience would probably think that whole comedy of manners bit was hilarious. Probably. He Whereas does a- we were just sat there going, I don't, what? How has he done anything wrong here? I, I completely understand his confusion. <laughs> he does a do-over and the second time he says, oh, sorry, when you said girlfriend, I thought she was gay. And Tina says, I am gay. And then he's like, right, okay, let's do another do-over. And this time just avoids them like bubonic plague. Yep. Uh, which apparently is the last plague that we ever avoided. So, <laughs> um, but, but at least Tim has the cure. Yeah, uh, but then when uh, the, he meets them both again outside the theatre, she says, "This is my friend, uh, my girlfriend Tina." He says, "Hello, Tina," and shakes her hand. And that's all you need to fucking do. You don't have to comment on the use of the crazy language, even if it is the wrong thing to say. In fact, Rory Although starts to comment. Rory does it. Yeah, yeah like, like, shut, shut up! Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> don't be an idiot like me. I was an idiot. Shut up. <laughs> 
Trust me, way, just shut up. The way I phrased it is he mainly seems to use time travel to take his own foot out of mm. his mouth. Yeah. This is my husband, Phil. Oh, how long have you been married? We aren't married. I call him my husband. <laughs> yeah, but that, but you pretty much lose your privileges of getting all huffy with people. If, if you use a word that basically means we are going out. You're allowed to have a friend who's a girl. What does girlfriend even mean? Sorry, just... <laughs> it's, it just feels like weirdly artificially punitive. To be fair, I would say that it wasn't so much like if I were in her position, and I say this as a, a white dude who's never been anywhere near her position, but <laughs> if I were in that position and like, and I had said that, it, it wasn't the, oh, you're gay reference or like oh this is your girlfriend reference it was it was the the overreaction the like oh that's why you didn't fuck me yes yeah peace <laughs> the uh, over explaining which you don't need right. to do tim back off yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah the next thing he does is uh she uh charlotte basically asks him back to her room uh because now suddenly with uh, him not being, like, with him playing it cooler because he's now with Mary, um, she's much more interested. And again, it, it just feels like she doesn't know he's with someone, so she's not clearly delineated as a homewrecker. No, she's, I don't right. think there's anything that portrays Charlotte as a villain at this at yeah. any point. No, at any point, yeah. I don't think so either. No. But ultimately it does present him with a person that he... Okay, he could, in terms of chronology and mm. his abilities have had sex with her and then go back in time and still go home in a world where he didn't so there's not even a paper trail in the most kind of machiavellian like you still fucking did it way mm -hmm. um but he doesn't even think about that he just it just makes him realize how much he really cares about mary and then he goes straight home to mary and kind of wakes her up with a marriage proposal fucks up does it again? <laughs> the point where he leaves, uh, where he leaves Charlotte without doing it, like the first time I saw this when I when I watched it and it was leading up to this point, the hairs on my arms, I say because I don't have any hair, but the hairs on my arms stood or started standing up and I started kind of clenching my fist like, oh, no, you're not going to you're not going to do this, are you? Tell me you're not going to. Oh, you didn't. Oh, good. Mm. Oh, good. Yeah. I was so relieved. And it, it's, again, like, it goes back to him just consistently proving that he's not a perfect dude, but he is a stand-up guy. We don't want perfect dudes in our films. It's intimidating no. and unrealistic. <laughs> but even even Willow picked up on the fact that this is, this is demonstrating the ultimate in moral decisions. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. he could do this with no consequences and the only person who would ever know would be him. Would be him, but exactly. But to him, that's enough. Mm -hmm. He would know and therefore he mm. he can't do it. Uh, I would, was very smart. I'm going to start talking about the relationship with women now because uh, of, the, of mm -hmm. the relationship with women within the film. It's going to be kind of a chunk of this because it's worth talking about. It's not insidious... It's not intentionally hurtful and it's sure. not intentionally trying to keep women down. But the film itself sees women as these kind of like adorable creatures. Like it's very much what a pretty thing you are. It's almost like a 1940s view of women. 
To demonstrate this to exaggerated effect, I'm going to play you a British TV sketch from the mid-90s. An ordinary dinner party. The sort of occasion we all enjoy. The men are exchanging witty stories. And look at the women. Aren't they pretty? Look at the way they laugh. They're delightful. But now the conversation turns to more serious matters. I wonder if the government should return to the gold standard. I think it should. Good. Then we're all agreed. But oh dear, what's this? One of the women is about to embarrass us all. I think the government should stay off the gold standard so that the pound can reach a level that would keep our exports competitive. The lady has foolishly attempted to join the conversation with a wild and dangerous opinion of her own. What half-baked drivel. See how the men look at her with utter contempt. If they were going home. Women, know your limits. Look at the effect of education on a man and a woman's mind. Education passes into the mind of a man. See how the information is evenly and tidily stored. Now see the same thing on a woman. At first we see a similar result. But now look, still at a reasonably low level of education, her brain suddenly overloads. She cannot take in complicated information. She becomes frantically and absurdly deranged. Now let's see the proper way. Good. So we're all agreed. We should return to the gold standard. Oh, I don't know anything about the gold standard, I'm afraid, but I do love little kittens. <laughs> They're so soft and furry. What a delightful thought, you dear, sweet, fragile little thing. <laughs> Women, know your limits. In thought, be plain and simple, and let your natural sweetness shine through. <laughs> Now, this is not the flavour of Richard Curtis films. Women are not judged with this level of scorn, but they are lovely little creatures, mostly there to make a man feel good. Yep. I, I wouldn't say I, I very deliberately went back to that era yeah. when I was trying to show how men are treated in autumn in Stone Spring Maidens. So it wasn't derogatory. It wasn't mm. a case of we must keep men down. It was just a case of you are such a gorgeous thing. I yep. want to look after you and you in turn will help support me. But don't let that you worry your pretty head. You know, it's it's very much a, a fond protectivity without allowing much agency at all. Fondness, right. yes, and you're absolutely right about the agency. I don't think that's quite it, but I do think you are totally on the right lines. What I think it comes down to is um, the way the way women are summed up in Man of La Mancha in all places. Mm-hmm. Woman is the very soul of man. A woman is glory. Yeah. What they are not is human beings in their own right who have ways of looking at the world and fuck up just like everybody else. And yet so, in most Richard Curtis films, there's at least one woman who kind of defies this. Like Fiona in Four Weddings and a Funeral really has her own stuff going on. Kristen yes, Scott Thomas. Yes, but I but. think a good chunk of that comes from Kristen Scott Thomas. It's not in the script. Mm. If you look at most of Richard Curtis's women, and, and in this, just if we're focusing on the women here, you've got, he, he clearly adores the character of uh, James's wife, Tim's mum. She is strong. She is coping with all sorts of shit. She is... Mary Senior. Yeah. She is uh, <laughs> resilient, and he clearly absolutely adores her as a character. Yeah. Um, even Mary, to an extent, she is sweet, she is adorable, but she is also very capable. She manages all of the family bullshit that's going on. But 
while there is a lot in the women that Richard Curtis writes to love, he doesn't seem to know them very well. Yeah. And what we don't get... He's kept get, a sort of a distance from them. Exactly. What we don't get is anything that gives us their perspective and their way of looking at things. And mm. this is where my my way of looking at Cat comes in because we see what goes on with Cat. We see the consequences of what... Um, what happens in her life but we don't apart from that wonderful moment when she's talking to Tim on the beach and she says maybe I oh can we hold back on Cat? Yes, because like yeah. there's so much to talk about with Cat, but okay. we need to talk about in the right place everyone but Cat, basically absolutely <laughs> um, yeah. but, but, but we don't get a lot of um, the inside view of the female mm. characters it's always the women are wonderful and they are completely mysterious to me and i don't really know how to go about who knows what goes on in the minds them. of women but yeah. it's probably flowers well, and you dresses. could ask them <laughs> <sighs> there's a, a quite long sequence where mary tries on dress after dress after dress and willow mm. asked why does she own all these dresses she hates <laughs> <laughs> and it's like Women do other things. Please, Richard, <laughs> diversify. Um, but there's also, and this is a bit more troublesome, quite a lot of talk of prostitutes in this film that's not especially kind. It's, yeah. like, it's, it's like, you know, this girl's a prostitute. Um, and they, they keep referring to Joanna as, as being like a prostitute. Like a nice prostitute. Like a nice thing, prostitute. The way he phrased it. Right. Think, it's not entirely better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, and even said, she gets in on that when yeah. when they're in the like after the museum date mm. and she's talking about her flat, which is basically a brothel. Yeah, again. And again, we've said this on the show before and I'm going to reiterate it. We are a pro sex worker podcast. Um, and, and just ultimately when it, it comes down to it, there's this kind of odd relationship with prostitution as well which uh, if you remember that hilarious gag from love actually i won't repeat it but you know the one uh, it also happens to go use that old chestnut the whole transphobia thing so uh yeah mm -hmm. that, that that bit anyway not andrew lincoln and chuatel edgefor's finest hour that bit but then enter center stage the terribly pretty kira knightley who just likes banoffee pie and doesn't know how to work video cameras I, I never feel like Richard Curtis is being hateful. He's just being an ignorant twit. He's yeah. very heteronormative. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. And he's heteronormative from the perspective of a mawkish idiot boy. That's who Hugh Grant was in Notting Hill. That's who Hugh Grant was in Four Weddings and a Funeral. That's who all the boys are <laughs> in Love Actually. I think Bill Nighy, you don't really get to see it from his perspective. He's this ever-loving dad figure. And I gotta say, when I watched this film, I was I kept uh, I kept crying over Bill Nighy and everything he says because I was like, "Could you be my dad, please, Bill Nighy?" Because because <laughs> like I I, I would yeah. really have relished having this dad growing up. And I was also crying because I was like recognizing elements of how well he got on with his kids that I've tried to strive towards with Willow and gone. I haven't right. done such a bad job. Mm -hmm. overall which you know is enough to make me well up at the thought of it but um tim is now about to marry mary and i consider it unconscionable that he never even thinks even considers telling her i have this superpower 
you must understand this before we get married because it's basically it's uh, up until now it's been a part of my life and you have been a part of my life but they are about to become the same life and it is right. not fair to you to keep this from you he tells cat later on because it really matters but it never seems to really matter enough to mary or to to well, him to, to his perspective on mary and she ends the film still his wife completely oblivious to this power and as far as i can tell so does mother mary she doesn't know her husband can travel through time and he actually explicitly says that right when when he has the talk that's the that's one of the first things that tim asks is does mom know Hmm. and he says oh no absolutely not so it's it's like it's a family thing to keep it a secret too which is is gross. That yeah. is, yeah. And and also, he never explains why. Ultimately, you could understand if it's like, your grandfather did tell his wife, and mm-hmm. she did not remain his wife for long. And then he told his next wife. She did not remain his wife for long. This is something you can choose to tell them, but it is a lot to deal with. And if he'd just laid down that... He, just so that we could see the risk, v, like yeah. just you could understand him basically living the rest of his life with this secret. I think he does say later on, not just a secret, so many secrets mm. that all link into this one thing. Yeah, I think Bill mm-hmm. Nye does say later on, if other people knew about it, it would get very complicated, yeah. and uh, you'd have all sorts of things to sort it out. I think you've got something there about the, this did happen to your grandfather or whatever, and it, and none of his wives would stay with him, mm. because ultimately, it, it would be very, very difficult to have the trust and faith in yeah. your partner, that when you hear that piece of information, you don't immediately think... What have you changed? What things mm-hmm. have you done? How have you manipulated that you've me? you've then undone for me? And how can I ever trust that yeah. anything that happens isn't the result of you futzing about? It requires an incredibly strong relationship. And ultimately, I was waiting the whole film the first time I saw it for him to actually tell her. And he never did. Right. I, I wasn't like, I am shocked because there were so many other good things about the film. But it mm-hmm. just, on rewatching it, it, it's it's bothered me. Not so much that it breaks the film. And and one of the other reasons is almost entirely arbitrary because this only happens to the males in the family. So it's almost like fate has decided that if you've got a Y chromosome, you get this. But if you're a a girl, then you're one of those treasured other type of people. Well, and the weird thing about the, like, you can never tell Mary and I never told your mother or anything like that is that when he does finally... Like when Cat finds out, and I like, are we are we talking about that yet? Can uh, we spoil not, that? We're not on Cat yet. We got the whole wedding to get past first. I'll be uh, vague, but yeah. when Cat does find out, you see, like you can tell that Dad knows what just happened. Mm. Like there's a shot of his face, and he yeah. kind of, and it's not even like an angry or disapproving, and like he doesn't pull Tim aside and say, "What did you just do?" He just kind of like smiles and nods knowingly like yep that was gonna happen eventually Mm. so why not like if you if it's okay to let cat know why not let mary know yeah Uh, and it feels like he didn't let her know because the script didn't know how to handle mary under those circumstances right yeah i would say it it, makes it a different story it does present a another uh 
block in time, mm. which we haven't discussed yet, but we will do, that if you if he told her, he then can't go back to before he's told her, because if he changes anything, then he might end up not telling her and then have to deal with the consequences of that. That's just confusing unless people know what you're talking about. Exactly. But yeah, I get but, you. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. They get married, and it's a, it's a wonderful uh, wedding in Cornwall. Uh, chucks it down with rain. And wonderful terrible disastrous wedding <laughs> it's it's torrential it's a friggin monsoon in cornwall um but they're british so they know i was just about to say jesse that that is pretty much british wedding every british happens. barbecue <laughs> results in rain, in rain and you have to sort of make the like smoke the meat under the tent flap or something yeah. like that it's it's insane oh yeah actually no that's what i was going to talk about um it was rachel mcadams who was in the time traveler's wife Yep. The time traveler's wife's husband tells her he's a time traveler when she's a child and says, you and I are going to be married and we're going to be best friends. Yeah, that might not be better. That's, yeah, no, I mean, it's not better, but at least she has her own decision-making question mark. Does she know? I mean, it's Eric Banner and he's mm. less... He's less reassuring than Dominal Gleeson, who yes, looks like he wouldn't hurt that. a fly, yeah. even as General Hux. Um, true. <laughs> but, Very true. Weird um, casting there. Excellent, oh man, but weird. Richard E. Grant blew him away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's right. But yeah, I mean, basically, the time traveler's wife. Have you seen this one, Jesse? No, I okay. haven't. As far as I can tell, it's nowhere near as good. Um, right. I'm sure there are people who, who love it, but I didn't. it didn't connect with me, mainly because of the weird kind of uh, little girl Rachel McAdams meets fully grown naked mm, um, <laughs> Eric Banner in a right. field because Jonathan and I have talked about this one he's always naked when he goes back right mm. he has no control over it yeah wh- why'd you add that <laughs> to the script script writers <laughs> it didn't, didn't need to It'd just be wearing time pants uh, anyway um <laughs> So he meets her and says, hey, you and I are going to be good friends or something. Maybe he's just friendly with her. And then later on, she keeps meeting him throughout her life. And then eventually, like, he, he keeps going back in time almost like uh, an epileptic seizure. It's, um, yeah, he has no control mm-hmm. over it. Yeah. He has no control over when or uh, when he goes to or when it yeah. happens. His only anchor is yeah. her. It's a, it's a sweet film. There's trouble within it, but... Um, she knows, and her dealing with this is the meat of the film. It's from her perspective. So it's kind of the inverse of this. Mm, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they have their wedding, and uh, originally uh, um, she does like a, a strip tease to get him to make four decisions <laughs> about where to have it uh, and, and who the best man is. Originally starts with Rory, who's an idiot friend of his, then switches for Harry, the playwright, who's, who's incredibly crass and bluff and thick and gittish. And then he switches Harry for Jay, who has like a chart of various <laughs> girlfriends and how he PowerPoint <laughs> slides. Yeah. Of... I mean, one of them he got to eighth Ooh. base with. I don't even know what that I don't entails. Know what that means. And then eventually, Especially since five was like <laughs> what I, I would he, like, what we would call a home run. Yeah, I, I think he does say that uh, eight is he goes, he gets as far as full penetrative, and then um, he gets cut yeah. off. But I mean, all of this, these laughs get kind of switched around when um, you get Dad as the best man, and Bill Nye mm-hmm. he does the best speech ever. Yes. Two of them. Two of them, because he goes back and goes, no, that, that wasn't quite the best speech ever. I think I could do better. And, <laughs> oh, my God. 
like all of the sh- the, the kind of shittiness towards um, like the the unwitting shittiness, unshitting wittiness towards women. <laughs> Um, is kind of just put by the wayside as this this dad son relationship just blossoms in front of our eyes. It's wonderful. Uh, a toast to the man with the worst haircut, but the best bride in the room, <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Tim and Mary. I wish I'd said I love you. You did, Dad. It was implied. I'm not sure implied is good enough for a wedding day. Yeah. No, don't. Don't do it. It's fine. I'm so, so happy with it as it was. You really don't have to. I'll do what I want to do, young man. Will you excuse me for just one moment? Later on, I may tell you about Tim's many failings as a man and as a table tennis player. But important first to say the one big thing. I've only loved three men in my life my dad was a frosty bugger so that only leaves dear uncle desmond um bb king obviously and this young man here i'd only give one piece of advice to anyone marrying we're all quite similar in the end we all get old and tell the same tales too many times but try and marry someone kind and this is a kind man with a good heart i'm not particularly proud of many things in my life but i am very proud to be the father of my son it really like the whole movie just sort of shifts tone and shifts focus right about at this point mm. because and and that could that could be another another point against it in the terms in terms of like the way that it handles women, because it's almost like once he and Rachel get married, she's not as important anymore. So we can shift views to how he's dealing with other things in his life. Now that he's quote unquote one. Yeah. Um, he's secured her. She knows where she's going to be. Right. And they're like really solid, which admittedly like they are really solid. You don't get any real fights apart from the, one uh after the dress thing but that mm. hardly matters but at this point like from here on the movie becomes it ceases to be about his relationship with rachel and they become sort of incidental to Mary. his relationship you're right <laughs> it's i'm gonna do that one over no no, no go I'm for gonna, it I, 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 you uh, are quite forgiven if, for forgetting with so many men excuse me a second i'll be right back okay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry jesse you were about to say something I was. <laughs> I was about to say something. Uh, it ceases to be, the movie ceases to be about his relationship with Mary, mm-hmm. and it becomes about his relationship with his dad. Yeah. And Mary and the family become a sort of almost incidental part of the second half of the film. Mm. Reliable resources sounds terrible dependable there is there is such a value placed on a loving family in the film it's hard to to sideline that and say oh they're just there but it becomes a case of like because he's such a decent guy he now has this really nice family and it doesn't necessarily require that much upkeep there are other things that take his attention and again the script is very focused Mm -hmm. and it it kind of like it moves in stages and blocks, as you said. That there's a block 
just coming up here. Um, and it allows this, what he can do to mature and for him, his, his conception of, of, of what he can do kind of takes on new meaning. So we're, we're at the cat stage now. She's starting to deteriorate. Mary gives birth. I asked you when we were listening to the commentary, um, did he introduce Mary to his family on the same day as he said they were getting married and that she was pregnant and expecting? And you went, no, yep. that, that was on different days. And I went, check. And apparently nope. I was right. That is some serious, focused concentration of all the women things in one go. I, I, I could say we, we could give them the benefit of the doubt and to say that they were there on holiday. Mm-hmm. It, they were there for a week mm-hmm. and this was the last day. Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily all on the same day, but it is definitely all in the same visit. stretch yeah. of them. It's in the uh, same visit, visit, for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, and <laughs> we do know that Kat already knows Mary. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. she lives she's in London. met her in London. So, yeah. And obviously his parents know about Mary. He didn't just turn up with her at the door. Yeah. Like, right. like happened with her parents. They turned up and suddenly had to be introduced mm. to him and told about his existence, more or well, less all he- in the same go. She did say to her, to Mary's credit, she did say that that uh, she's told them of the existence of someone like him. Mm. So they knew that she had a boyfriend, but they didn't know that it was Tim or anything about him. Yeah. Right. The existence of a potential Tim. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think his parents knew who she was mm. and, and obviously Kat had met her so she would have talked about her as well but this was the first right. time they were actually meeting her in person. This is my my girlfriend Mary and she's also a girl who's my friend yeah. and she's going to be my <laughs> wife and she's also going to be the mother of my child so she will be my wife, replacement mother and child keeper for me to enjoy like an eclair. It is worth... <laughs> Which Vanessa Kirby eats, eats later on. Yeah. It is worth noting that Cornwall is a long way from London. Yeah. And you can't just go down for, for a day. Yeah, and when we lived in Kent and my parents lived in Scotland, no. we didn't see them for about two years, maybe once or twice in two mm, years. That is true. That is very true. Speaking of Scotland, I love the the scene when we were talking about before the, the strict to make decisions. And mm. she's like, I'm not taking off my pants for Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> I believe all the Scottish people in the audience got horribly offended at that point. <laughs> I, we don't want to see you without your scrunchies. Um, anyway, like I said, cats starting to deteriorate at this point, and they they have right. their uh, lovely wedding, and they have their lovely daughter, and then a couple of years, like a, at least a year or so, goes. No, no, it's it's a year of their daughter's it's, life. Goes it's Posey's by. first mm-hmm. birthday. Yeah, Posey's first right. birthday. So they've, they've he's had a, a wonderful time with this child, and cat um, is very late to get there, and Jimmy turns up, and. It turns out Kat's been drinking a lot and she drove off that morning and had a horrible traffic accident. And then he goes to see her in hospital and she's okay-ish. Like she's, um, you know, got got quite a lot of um, uh, facial cuts and and the the bruising and and the impact of the accident itself has obviously left her very shaken. But there's a lot of damage there already prior to the crash which she's dealing with and that sadness and melancholy that she's been feeling this whole time really becomes apparent and 
Do you want to talk about Cat now? Because, I mean, as long as it's not part and parcel of the whole, there's time travel involved here, yeah. as you might expect, folks. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the only thing that I will say with regard to that is that he approaches this as, a, as though there is one thing that went wrong that he can fix. Yeah. And that is absolutely not the case. Yeah. He goes back in time to that morning and drives her to the party, but that's not enough of a rescue. Yeah. Well, he, wa- he wants to undo the pain that she's experienced that got her to that place in the... In, yeah. In the first instance. Um, and he starts to figure that, you know, there's been a lot that's been unspoken or not listened to and really followed up on. Yeah, absolutely. And I would I would speculate that the some of the issues that Kat is clearly dealing with are to do with her neurological makeup. They are to do with her um, experiences with... Uh, her boyfriend Jimmy which is the thing that Tim latches onto that this is the thing that needs to be resolved get rid of Jimmy but it it goes way 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 beyond that but I would also say that and this ties into what we've already said about the way Richard Curtis portrays women in this film the focus is on Tim's relationship with his dad James's relationship with Kat is barely touched on yeah it's very much mm-hmm. a come here and have a snuggle daughter. Yeah. And that's it. And she's like, oh, Dad, I love you a yeah. lot. And when she's little, everybody adores her because she's this wild thing and she doesn't she doesn't conform to, to ways she should behave. She does whatever the hell she wants. And it's always sweet and always lovely. And Never wears shoes, loves parable. Even when that starts to become behavior that should be ringing alarm bells. Like I said, nobody asks her questions. Nobody picks up on it. And I think part of it comes down to... Because everyone shares Richard Curtis's obliviousness. Yeah, and you're absolutely right about the the sort of the manic pixie dream girl element of it. That is is really key. I do like the fact that they go there in this, that that Mm -hmm. underpins something wrong. And it's, it's not until it's almost too late that that gets picked up on. The fact that her mother is very resilient and has this kind of strong I can cope with anything I've got a sneaky feeling that basically Tim and his father both came at Kat with the attitude of well I take after dad she'll take after mum she'll be fine she'll sort herself out we don't have to do anything she'll figure it out and Kat outlines herself as the one who falls. So it's effectively an even more dramatic version of the black sheep of the family the the wayward child and she just seems to embrace this side of herself. And it's so fucking sad to... See, the the problem is that James and Mary never had an insurance baby. <sighs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to that uh, in time. There's a lot to cover in this thing. Um, Tim takes Kat back to that party where he kissed the girl at Old Lang Syne, uh, the one at the very beginning of the film. And she not mm-hmm. only... Um, doesn't meet with Jimmy, she walks over there and punches him square in the face uh, to effectively exorcise and unhook this thing from her. Well, specifically, she witnesses him missing her by centimetres because Tim pulls her in the other direction. Yeah, And right. walks straight over to a different girl and pulls the same routine and, and starts hitting on her instead. Yeah. What that tells Kat is, if I hadn't been there, he'd have glommed on to the next available female. Yeah. Therefore, 
his way of looking at me is irrelevant. Yeah. And something else happens with Kat later on, and I'll wait until you tell me when I can say what it is. Okay. <laughs> but it makes it very clear that the way Kat looks at relationships is I need somebody to tell me I'm worth it. I need somebody else to feel, to, to look at me and see something positive. That's what she's trying to grab hold of, and that's what Tim never picks up on. Yeah. I also read into her confrontation with Jimmy here that in a way she saw like when she said, like, if I wasn't here, it would have been her. Yeah. I almost feel like she went and specifically caused the altercation with Jimmy so that that other girl didn't end up going through what she went through also. I so read in that effective, the exact same way. Yeah, like High five. Right. Like she, she was saving both of them yeah. with that with that punch and that kick to the nuts that yeah. came right afterwards. We did actually say, like, uh, you said, oh, the, the other girl's going to end up suffering for it. And, and I said, yeah, short right. of kidnapping Jimmy yeah. and, mm-hmm. and like ensuring that basically beating how he behaves to women out of him, either verbally or literally beating, uh, whichever one <laughs> is easiest, um, you're not going to be able to stop Jimmy being Jimmy. Yeah. But at least right. she can deal with him in, in this proximity infatuation absolutely and like i said at the time that would also then mean that tim would have to go and do that for every in a like bad guy that, every sc- and then you've got to escalate that to everyone who's ever done anything bad. precisely but you are absolutely right by causing that altercation in front of the other girl mm. she's not necessarily making it so that their relationship doesn't play out the same way but she is making sure that that night doesn't go exactly the same um right. just with the other girls so she's interrupting mm. that particular flow and that particular cycle and this um I, I, I really loved this moment because it allows Kat to actually take control of her own life, which yeah. is extremely important. And do something in her own yeah. uh, agency. Right. Her own and um, then uh, he comes back from Cornwall after Kat kind of feels like they return to the present and uh, Kat kind of feels better about herself and then immediately is already dating Jay, is it? Mm-hmm. This Jay, uh, one, yeah. one of the various Dimbo Dumbo friends of uh, um, Tim. She said in the hospital, I guess I'll just have to uh, date a nice guy who is boring. And uh, Sharon and I, while, you know, over the evening have just been sending each other (laughs) nice guys that we know who are not the least bit boring. So that is not necessarily a one-to-one thing. Right. Um, But the fact fact that Kat perceives nice as boring, that plays into my read on her. The fact that she has gone through her life. If you look at how she behaved as a child, how she behaves as as an adult, there's all this stimulation-seeking behaviour that Mm. she does and she ends up with with the wrong... uh, The wrong. She ends up with a lot of unhealthy behaviours that she needed help and support to unpick. So she doesn't have to stay with Jay, but altogether he's a, a more healthy alternative right now and her hair looks a lot better and she looks a lot healthier mentally and they, there's some very subtle makeup work to, to make sure that she actually looks mm. like she's in a better place here. And a lot of it is just and, the way Lydia Wilson oh, pulls it off. Yeah, like I she's said, she's, that she conveys an awful lot with facial expressions and, and her, her stance. Mm. There's the, When um, Mary comes round to the house for the first time, and we know, again, as we said, we know Kat knows Mary already. Mary Junior. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> fiance at this point, Mary. Mother Mary. Um, but Kat runs through the house and throws herself at Mary. Like a dog. With a 
There is a desperation in there, though. It's like, oh, that's so mm-hmm. sweet, and she's treating. It's her a desperation like a for stimulation. She and, is and just absolutely thirsty yeah. for some positive reinforcement yeah. at that point to see somebody that she knows cares about her. So then, something happens in this film that I have never seen happen in a time travel film. And really, just, really quickly, I want to jump back to Cat for just a second. Go for it, because yeah. there was there was one very, very subtle, uh, but very clever bit of set dressing and production design that again kind of gives us another um another hint that cat's doing a lot better um you you may notice before the like we keep talking about how like she's wearing her purple shirts and she loves purple and the thing one of the things that told mary that she was not okay is that she spurned the purple cupcakes that they made made especially for her yeah when at the baby when they uh, first baby Posey's birthday party. Posey's birthday party, right? So when Tim and Kat got into the closet to go back, she was wearing like this big loose uh, cable knit like beige sweater. Yeah, right. Yeah, and they went back and they're in the party. When she came back, she's wearing a nice, pretty, long sleeved purple striped shirt. Yeah, she's got her color back. Yeah. She's got her color back and she's kind of back to the cat that she wants to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was lovely. And uh, there's, well, yeah, no, I'm coming back to cat in just a bit. <laughs> then something happens, which I've never seen in any other time travel film. And is actually really clever because it blindsides you. And they yep. even mention uh, during the uh, scene where cat um, gets, uh, into an accident. Um, they mention Baz Luhrmann's song Sunscreen, where uh, I think Bill Nye pointed out in the commentary, this is the only time that a director of another, a director of other movies has one of the songs they've made play into the themes of the movie mentioned, but they're not actually playing the song. They're just talking about mm-hmm. it, and it's of a director. Don't worry about the future, or worry, but know that worrying effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind, the kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Uh, I love that line, and I always have. Mm -hmm. And it's true. We were watching a a show called Outnumbered, a British show, um, uh, many, many years ago, and there's one episode where... Um, these it's it's a comedy with drama elements, and then they mention that uh, the um, there's been an accident, and one of the kids was involved, and my fucking world dropped out because that's how accidents happen. You just get told about them, you weren't there, and someone's badly hurt or killed. And in this mm-hmm. case, the kid was fine, but in the case of Cat, she wasn't exactly fine, and it's it's. We've had a lot of that in the past few, uh, bunch of years. A lot of being told suddenly something's terrible has happened. Uh, and it's not always things that we can see looming. What happens here is Tim goes home with steam in his strides. He's like, I've finally done a good thing. I feel like I've actually kind of saved the day with Kat here. She's happy. Uh, I, I used my time travel for, for good. I actually brought someone back with me. So, you know what? That's going to... That's going to change things for the better. And then he goes back, 
into his house, says hello to Mary, and, she, uh, and says, where's, uh, where's my child? And then goes into the kitchen to feed his son, his baby son, because going back that far had a profound effect on the, or indeed just a subtle effect on the intervening months and years that happened. And what ultimately uh, occurred when he goes back and talks to his dad about it uh, at the actual day of the birth of this new child that he doesn't recognize and has no memory of uh, is that uh, they made love and conceived on a different night and it's a, it's a different baby, a different sperm and egg. Or even at a different moment on the same night. Yeah. It, like just so many infinite different possibilities. It's um, right. it, it's just all the variables uh, of that basically mean that if you go back before the conception of one of your children, when you come back, they will be different, which again, blew my mind. But then watching it this time, I was like, dad, James talks about this with such, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you can't, you know, go back before the birth of your child makes me wonder was cat someone else was Tim someone else. The thing that is weird to me is that he's so nonchalant about it. He's just like, oh, yeah, my bad. I probably should have mentioned that before. Like, no, that's that's like rule number one. Like, as soon as that's you tell him on the fucking birthday, (laughs) not even on the birthday. Yeah, no, the the moment of conception. Hey, we're having a baby. That's the point when dad needs to be like, Tim, hey, we need to have a, a chat real quick. By the way, now that it's relevant, here's something really, really important. Yeah, because basically, if you're going to do something really important that happened before this, do it now. You've got nine months until your baby comes out and you get to know them. Mm hmm. Because ultimately, oh, for, for that time, they are uh, Schrodinger's baby. And right. uh, uh, effectively, you haven't forged those memories with them. Um, exactly. But his neglect on that... And also, don't learn the sex. <laughs> and, but his neglect on that, um, you know, completely blindsides Tim. And I had a completely different memory of this movie that I had invented a different sequence of events... <laughs> Because Tim, we've already established, is inherently a decent guy. He will always do the right thing. And what has happened is he has traded the life of one baby for another. One has evaporated out of existence and the other one has evaporated into existence. He's lost a year of growing up with this child and this child growing up with him. And the child will recognize him, but he won't recognize the child. Mm -hmm. And in my head... He swallows this and goes, okay, and carries on for the sake of his sister that he has actually really had a profound positive effect on. But And that's he, what I thought he was going to do. Yeah, but he doesn't. He goes back and changes it again and basically steers Cat into the path of Jimmy so that all those events can play out exactly as they had to before and then goes back. And then she has her accident and despite the ripple effect is still alive. He's just looking at that on paper. It's fucking unconscionable. Yeah. And I I interpret it as slightly different in the sense that it's, it's not that he went back and explicitly like steered her back towards Jimmy. Um, I interpreted that as he went back and just didn't, take her back like didn't 
That's what you said. That's what you said, Sharon. We discussed this. The timeline's already in the I punched Jimmy timeline. We've already skewed into an alternate Mm. timeline. Yeah, I guess that's true. One where this baby was born differently. Yeah. Which means I actually drew a diagram to illustrate where everything happened. He'd be going back on a different timeline. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. No, that's a good point. um, Basically, there was never a time in this alternate timeline where he sat down with Kat because he didn't have to because she already never went out with Jimmy. But there are Mm -hmm. there are other things that feed into why I don't. She may even, in fact, have been dating. Um, no, in fact, she was. It was on that afternoon. She was already dating uh, Jed, Jeb, Jay, Jay. Yeah. So he wouldn't have done that. That part actually weirded me out a little bit too, because as soon as they come back, they're still in the closet, mm. and Cat says, "Oh my God, it's Jay!" Like yeah. she has the memories of. She has the memories, but he doesn't have the memories of his new baby. Have the memories and, and like yeah. you could theoretically like nah. I could see it just being. He wasn't thinking about it, and it, it he wasn't thinking about the babies. But as soon as he got home, those that year's worth of memories should have been flooded back. So he didn't even really miss a year because yeah. if she has memories, so does he. In bingo. And ultimately, um, they they contradict themselves in this film regarding the time travel, mm-hmm. and but also regarding the emotion, regarding the mm-hmm. emotional truth that runs throughout this. I'm just going to take you down a side road and mention that we also recently rewatched The Butterfly Effect from 2004. That is remarkably similar in its mechanics, only it's absolutely wrong. His dad in that film is also gifted with time travel powers and being able to jump back throughout his own life and into his body. But his dad, when he finds out that he's planning on doing some time traveling, tries to kill him. The movie starts within seven minutes of the titles. There's child molestation, which then perpetuates throughout the entire plot. You can't get rid of it. There's a psychotic boy who burns a dog alive in a sack and kills a baby with dynamite. There's a helpless girl who has no ability to steer her own life or timeline. And he reroutes her life over and over again, creating disastrous outcomes. She becomes a really shallow sorority sister. Then she becomes a waitress, which is apparently the worst job you can ever get. Hands up anyone else who ever served tables before in their life. And then she kills herself because her life is so dead end. Imagine waiting tables at the age of 21. There's nothing left for you. Then the third time he changes her life around, she's a crack whore. Their words, not ours. He kills her brother with a baseball bat and is rushed straight to prison faster than Chris are in the room without trial. And the prison is full of rapists. And then he goes back in time and gives himself stigmata. And the stereotypical Latino gang member, heavily Catholic, goes, Oh, those wounds just appeared. No, they didn't. Because he'd have changed the timelines and come in with those wounds. I don't mind internal inconsistency in time travel stories. As it turns out, they're really hard to write. But everything else is so bad. And like I say, he keeps changing the course of this poor woman's life. Until eventually... He goes to extremes, depending on which version you watch, to extricate himself from her life at a very young age. At one point, he manages to get everything right, except for the fact that he is missing both his arms and is confined to a wheelchair. Everyone else in the world is happy. And his response is to try to kill himself. Sorry, disabled people in the audience, your lives aren't worth living. It is a wretched movie. 
only faintly improved by the fact that the guy in it is basically decent. Ashton Kutcher's character does want people to be happy and does care about people. But the duo of writers and filmmakers behind the butterfly effect, let's just say their philosophies run fairly counter to my own. But telling you all about the butterfly effect that way, I hope, puts Richard Curtis's treatment of women in perspective, forgivable in context, and not as bad as it could be. But to bring you back to about time, just in case it was confusing with all the jumping around what I was angry about, he took his sister back to help her assert herself and avoid a terrible relationship, then comes back to the present, finds out his one-year-old baby is now a different baby because he's changed the timelines, then goes back, resets things, and allows his sister to fall into a deep depression, ultimately culminating in a literal car crash that he himself has no control over. And I remind you, he lets that happen so that he can have his old baby back. He's been such a decent guy this whole time, and this is the most profoundly selfish decision that he could make. Absolutely. It's one year of one baby's life. And also in doing that, they even mentioned this on the commentary, he winks that second baby boy out of existence. Right. So, I mean, like... And that's actually... That's something that you mentioned that that this threw you because you've never seen this in a film before. I haven't ever seen this done in a film before, but I've seen it done twice on television. Oh, right. And both times, the... Like they're they really, really play into that moral, you know, that that moral quandary of because the person who goes back in time wants to go back and fix things. And the people who are there now are saying, no, I don't care what that old timeline was. This is my child now. Do not take them away from me. Yeah. And they have to make that decision and that it never comes up here. Side note. (laughs) They don't show what he does to change this back. He would jump back to the night of the old Lang Syne New Year's party and Kat mm-hmm. from this alternate timeline would now be in her old body. And he'd be like, I'm just going to show you to Jimmy. And she'd go, fuck off. I don't want to see, see Jimmy. We just discussed this. And where have you been? Am I wrong? Right. It, it could get awfully late. Basically, she's another time traveler now and, from this alternate mm-hmm. timeline. And it reinforces why... Not telling anybody is a good idea. It reinforces why not telling anybody, but it also, like, for the sake of this, he should have fucking left it. Mm. He should, like, the whole point is him sacrificing that child is the most incredibly painful thing for him to have to live with. It's an indescribable, impossible thing to have to, uh, to basically, like, no one's ever actually been a time traveler that we know of and has had to deal with this. So him taking that on the chin and learning the hardest lesson makes him a better person. Him going back mm-hmm. and changing that shit makes him a kind of a monster. Yeah. <laughs> a selfish really bastard because he doesn't know what's going to happen. And the, mm-hmm. what this comes down to is ripples. If you look at time right. as a mill pond, you, th- you go back in time one day. That is throwing a piece of gravel into the mill pond and you get a little bloop. The little ripples come out. You change something from further back, maybe something more significant, that's a bigger stone. You change something mm-hmm. huge, you are throwing a hunk of ironstone and creating massive ripples. There's no guarantee that, that it would have been Posey the second time either. Yeah. Even just Can we- one thing different and, and yeah. the, the cosmic chance changes again. 
So again, I feel like uh, there was a, another part of my brain that was remembering uh, him trying to, to, I suppose, um, treat Kat as gently as possible after her accident and try and get her on the straight and narrow. And then just... Which did happen. That did happen, yeah. That, that's basically how they solve it. They get her on the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. In my head, she kept coming a cropper again and again and bad things kept happening to her. And eventually mm-hmm. he realized... I've got to go back and do this one thing so that she has this patch of her life repaired and actually is able to to get through it and accept right. that he has to give up this child effectively for the life of his sister. That like it's just that that refusal of the call. I'm just I really don't want to give up because I love my daughter so much and she's gone because of this. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is the, the, this is it's a fundamentally uncomfortable bit for me. Mm. And Part of why it is fundamentally uncomfortable is that ultimately I think the decision that he makes is right for Tim because I don't think he's capable of dealing with the complexities of helping Kat by any means other than the one he thinks he knows, which is go back and sort Jimmy out. Mm. Like I said, he he clings on to this idea that there's this one thing that went wrong, and if he sorts that, she'll be fine. And I actually, because part of me was like, well, having done that and realised that that's going to mess things up for you, you can still go and pick her up and stop her getting into this crash. We've established that one worked okay. That Mm. didn't mess anything up too much. But the way it seems to be framing it it, is Kat has to have this crash so that it will open her to the concept that she's mucked her life up and needs to get herself sorted out. Mm. And that for her, it is a... Uh, it is a moment of eye-opening, and knowing that she is going to be physically okay means that he decides it's probably best not to meddle, just let that play out the way it does, and then she will be able to realise that she's got to sort herself out. But, again, there is this level of what that does is it basically tells me Richard Curtis doesn't understand women, and, again, this (laughs) falls under that category of, well, they're so mysterious, and sometimes they do things that aren't good for them, and they just have to have that... The universe reaches out and shakes you by the shoulder and tells you that this is why everything's going wrong and you've just got to pick yourself up and sort yourself out. And no, hmm. no, well, she and it's still even... needed support. She still needed yeah. people to listen to her. It's not that simple. You you fix these things by, like I said, daily interactions, talking to people, mm-hmm. small, regular that is how you support people who are struggling, not by fixing one big dramatic thing for yeah. them. Right. And I feel like the, the movie does realise that. It does realise that there's a lot going on with yeah. Kat and that she yeah. kind of... She is beyond his comprehension, basically. Yeah. But she does end up alive at the end of the uh, film. Absolutely. And And like you, I had a a weird misremembering of the film Mm. um, because when I watched it the first time, I had this overwhelming dread that the upshot was going to be that he changed something and Kat ended up killing herself and then he didn't know how to unpick that. And that fixed Mm -hmm. itself quite strongly in my mind. So I was kind of, there was a little bit of me thinking, is that going to actually happen? But obviously it it doesn't. Um, So... Then, to really make us cry, to really make us start to to, to feel like yeah, as, as 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 weirdly kind of dodgy as this whole cat situation resolves 
resolves itself, that he resolves to end the cat situation by just kind of letting it happen and doing his best in the mm. present. Um, and he tells her, Jay's always had a crush on you. Yeah. To spark that interest in her. That was the other thing that I alluded to earlier, that thinking that someone else is interested in her yeah. is the thing that right. fires cat up. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, after the dress trying on session, which really didn't need to be in the film at all, um, they they get a call from uh, Mary Senior uh, and uh, are called to Cornwall. <sighs> Do you want to put him in the living room? Yeah, if you could. <laughs> He's just doing that oh, thing where he undercuts all the drama. Why isn't <laughs> anybody petting me? How about if I lie on my back? They get called to Cornwall... Uh, James' dad has been uh, diagnosed with cancer. He has a couple of weeks left. And then life becomes incredibly precious, just the idea of this ticking clock. Again, Bill Nye just gives this wonderful kind of... He gives all the living room performances. He barely leaves one living room except to go to another living room in this film. <laughs> like, that's Watch his... Yeah, and the beach. That he'll go down to the beach as well. It's it's his idyllic life, um, and he he talks about the secret, the uh, um, the, the secret that uh, that that Tim, in all of his uh, chronal chicanery, has not yet uh, managed to muster. Oh, for God's sake! Not you too. What? Well, Kit Kat's just rolled up, blubbing her eyes out, and now you're here. What's Mum been saying? The truth? Yeah, well, apart from that, it may have been the smoking, but I couldn't undo that as it was before you were all born. And anyway, your mother definitely wouldn't have gone out with me if I hadn't been such a sexy smoker. <laughs> I did get diagnosed as soon as possible, but it was too late. How long have we got? Oh, you know. It could be years. How long, really? <sighs> Weeks, I'm afraid. Have we had this conversation before? Yeah. What happened? I rather let myself down. I hugged you. I think I just thought with the time thing. No, I never said we could fix things. I specifically never said that. Life's a mixed bag, no matter who you are. Look at Jesus. He was the son of God, for God's sake. Look how that turned out. I know. <laughs> you must see I feel a bit cheated. Don't. In fact, feel the opposite. The only people who give up work at 50 are the time travelers with cancer who want to play more table tennis with their sons. <laughs> Right. So that's been the deal. I'm sorry we had to call. It suddenly got very bad. And I have something very important to tell you. Or let me check. Do you want to know the big secret or would you rather find it out for yourself like I did? Oh, Christ, there's another secret. Less traumatic, much more important. The real 
mothership. Now go on. Tell me. Let's save some time. And so he told me his secret formula for happiness. Part one of the two-part plan was that I should just get on with ordinary life, living it day by day like anyone else. But then came part two of Dad's plan. He told me to live every day again, almost exactly the same. The first time with all the tensions and worries that stop us noticing how sweet the world can be. But the second time, noticing. Okay, Dad, let's give it a go. Which leads to a wonderful kind of montage sequence of, of him living uh, one kind of fairly mundane day where, by the way, he's a, a lawyer and doesn't use this to, uh, to advance his career at all, his time mm-hmm. traveling, which is right honorable of him. Sure. Ultimately, we reach the point of the film where what we're learning about the time travel can apply to our real life. And that's, that's mm-hmm. why the time travel stories that lean closer to emotion are far more nourishing and useful to us than the ones that lean on the science. Because the science basically kind of boils down to, look at me, how clever I am at working out how time <laughs> travel could actually work. And you're like, yes, round of applause. How and does this why, apply to real life? Why are you writing novels instead of building a time-travelling machine? Because they're a novel writer <laughs> with a particular scientific bent. But yeah, <laughs> the ones that are emotional effectively give us a model for observing our own lives through the lens of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is your language, Jesse. Do you, do you want to um, go in on this? Yeah, and this is one of the things that um, that I've, in my notes, I basically have that I know we don't like to use the P word, but this film is a perfect example of the, one of the lessons that we like to talk about on our show is that time travel is not a story end in and of itself. Time travel is a tool that you can use to tell a better story. And that's exactly what is happening here. The, the time travel in this is is incidental it's a way of facilitating the the growth of the of the character and the relationships it's just a way of it's a tool that is being used to tell a better story and it's one of the instances where because it does that so well the back-end mechanics and the consistency of it and the little gotchas don't really matter because time travel is only like the mechanics are only important if they take you out of the story, if they disconnect you from the narrative and if the narrative is this good, you can forgive a lot. And the fact that it's 80% consistent allows it to just get out of the way and let you just get engrossed in the story of Tim's life. Yeah. Rachel, I did it again. (laughs) Uh, Well, I did it the first time. Ah, hang on. Mary then hits him with, uh, they've had a second child along this way. And then um, at the funeral, he goes to see his dad at his dad's funeral. It's a wonderful little moment. Again, he's just sort of in the lounge reading a book back then when uh, when Tim goes to, to find him. It's this 
to be able to ask uh, of one's own funeral uh, what suits uh, Uncle, what's his name, wearing Desmond. Desmond. I mean, he, he's a lovely little sort of extra addition to the family, just this sort of lunatic madcap old guy who <laughs> he gives um, Tim at one point when he goes to London £2.50 and says, spend it all at once, which is the <laughs> inverse of what you're supposed to do. But um, just to be able to chat with his dad and his dad's like, oh, oh, I realise now that's where you are. Right. And sorry, that's when you are. That's when you are. Yeah. Yeah. This conversation just and it it's it breaks me every time, like both of the times that I've seen this now. And part of it is because it's so small. Like it's it, it this is the like he's about he's talking to his father on like the day of his funeral, he's going back and and having this like what feels like a final conversation, even though we know it's not going to be. But it it's it feels like it should be this heavy moment. And they just sit and talk about Roman noses in this passage from the book that his dad is reading. It, it's such a it's such an incidental could have been any day at any point in time conversation and the fact that like that's that's the conversation that they choose to have right in that moment just as i mentioned before i tend to not cry at in in movies but this movie gets me very close multiple times and this is one of those times where i'm watching and i just kind of have to start taking deeper breaths like okay okay compose yourself because it's just so it's so meaningful Effectively, the film is telling you that the the little interactions, the little connections, uh, are the most important. Yeah, the the second time he notices, uh, we're noticing the little things. He supports his friend. He watches people mm-hmm. smile rather than not making eye contact. He celebrates minor moments and he connects with people physically. He gets the dessert when he goes mm-hmm. to get his lunch. Yeah. You notice he spends more money the second time around. Uh, and he connects with people in a way that fucking brought tears to my eyes because in the narrative <laughs> of 2021, it's like, I'd really like to hug someone at this yeah, point, anybody. and I fucking can't. Mm-hmm. <sighs> We've also missed one of my favourite lines in the entire film. Sharon, do you want I'm wanna... not going to be able to do it any better than you, Cap. <laughs> I, I, I can read it. I, like, I can say it if you want to tell me. Tell me what it is or, or type it out for me. No, that's fine. It's um, it's when they go to um, meet Dad after the diagnosis, and it's the first, you know, like uh, you know, having to have a, a serious talk with him. Mum opens the door. Hello, darling. Mum, how are you? Honestly. Why not? I am fucking furious. I am so uninterested in a life without your father. Mary, mm-hmm. come on, let's make some tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I recognize that it comes from intense closeness. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's sort of that sardonic way that Mary, the elder, has with everything. It's, I, I, it felt like an extension of the conversation she had when she first met mm. Mary the junior when she says gods you're pretty and 
and Mary's like, no, I'm just am wearing a ton of makeup. And she says, oh, yes, that's important. It's it's important for a girl not to be too pretty. Otherwise, she won't get a sense of humor or a personality. Oh, and- when she said that. And I'm like, excuse me, Margot Robbie <laughs> is right over here. <laughs> Harley motherfucking Quinn is right over here. <laughs> There are so many gorgeous women with great senses of humour. What? What are you talking about, she's Mary? She's being Britishly sarcastic. Yeah. She's she's being silly and sardonic, but yet she also Rachel McFucking just... Adams, right? <laughs> but everybody is capable of beauty, and it has nothing to do with makeup. Just this this way of essentially just being a little bit put out about everything, and that's sort of the way that. Mary the Elder responds to just about every conversation is just being being a little bit tossed. Mm. And the fact that her her response to her response to the fact that her husband is dying is to say basically just to say, well, that fucking sucks. Yeah. There is a depth of feeling in this. And um, really. Unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, unfortunately, beautifully, frustratingly, he didn't (laughs) tell Mary Jr. And following the funeral, Mary Jr. drops a bomb on him and says, I want to have another child. And he's like, "Uh uh-huh. Because, of course, we now know what that entails. And Mary's like, "Uh, why why would you want uh, another child? We've got two wonderful children. We're very middle class. And (laughs) and she's like, well, we need a safety child in case one of them's really bright. Then the other two will be okay and they they won't compete. Right. So that that if one of them is really smart, the other one doesn't have to feel bad about not being really smart. That was the the joke I made in poor taste earlier about the insurance baby is what she called it. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, what it boils down to is women like having babies, don't they? They love the babies, ladies and babies. They love them so much. And aren't you just a, such a pretty oblivious thing? Because what you're asking me is to put a giant wall up in my life, which I can no longer cross. And specifically, Mm -hmm. uh, he is blessed with this amazing ability to be able to go back and see his dad or indeed to do any number of things in the past. Um, and now he can't. And honestly, Which, I would be like, the ending of this movie is just, you know, so from now on, I just play baby roulette. And I come back <laughs> and I, 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 you know, my first two babies are always the same. And it's always fun finding out what's up, what's the different third what baby. Baby three is going to be today. I mean, that's, that's, that's having not learned the lesson. And you can't apply that to real life and totally leaning on the crazed science of this thing. But mm-hmm. he, I mean, it, ultimately, it, it really does mean that he, even though the death has occurred, he could feasibly go back and chat with his dad and just, you know, exchange pleasantries that way. But now, once this baby comes, that's it. And he's not going back anymore, which is, right. it's, a, it's a way of introducing the model of death into a, a narrative that defies death. A narrative that basically says, oh, the person that you really like and care about dies, well, you may be able to go back and stop that happening, unless it's something like cancer. Right. And um, Which even Superman couldn't stop. Yeah. yeah. And it's... Again, the, the frustration comes from the fact that Mary has no idea what she's asking him. Right. And when he says yes, she has no idea of what a huge deal that is. 
and what he's giving up exactly. Yeah, and, and we get a wonderful little. Yeah, he goes back to uh, um, his dad, and and uh, they play ping pong. by the younger player are seduced by memories of the older player's illustrious past. Ah! Oh my God, I haven't won. I haven't won in years. You finally got good. What's my prize apart from the Olympic gold medal, of course? A kiss will have to do. A kiss? A kiss? Oh. Ah, I get you. This is it, then. This is it. It's my last bit of extra time. The baby is completely on the way. Can do. Is there anything you want to do? I don't know. There is this one thing. A quick little walk. Totally against the rules, of course, but if we don't change a thing, if we're very careful, it shouldn't do any harm. It would be nice. And James's plan is to simply jump back several decades together to when Tim was seven years old and then just run on the beach. I said to a uh, 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 kid, if you could go back to when you were one, feasibly you could engage us in loquacious conversation and freak <laughs> us the fuck out. <laughs> Because effectively, all you're doing is transferring your consciousness into a, uh, a brain uh, with a body that isn't used to speaking, but feasibly could. This conversation makes me really question what what would it be like to have this sort of relationship with your dad, with someone where both of them are <laughs> time travelers, where in the sense that like at this point, he's going back to a time where the two children already exist and there's a third on the way, mm. but the dad knows this, but presumably the version of Tim from that point in time would not have known this. So like you're, you're, I don't know if either of you, I don't know if you all watch Dr. Who, but it, it's, it's like, wibbly, the wibbly, timey, wimey. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like the relationship between the doctor and river in the sense that, they are meeting each other in reverse. So the first time the doctor meets River is the day that she dies. And every time he meets her after that is earlier in her time. They have to kind of catch up and figure out where they are. Mm. And it almost feels the same way because he's talking. He just says, like, the baby is is basically coming right now, which means that at some point he's gone back and they've had the conversation where, like, oh, yeah, future me is having another baby. Mm. And it's this other time after you're gone. And so, like, 
the dad is having to keep all that straight in his head. Like every time he sees his son, yeah. is like, is this is this the son from today, is or this is this the or son is this from? Yeah, right. Is this the son from next year? Mm. Yeah. But the fact that by. But they don't keep a note of it. Like he could come back and go, "Oh, hey, uh, it's the third uh, of October, twenty thirteen. Oh, right, third of October. So um, actually, you're a bit earlier. Okay, <laughs> that's what I'd do. But I'm not Donald Gleason's complete mook in this movie. <laughs> but, but the fact that Bill Nye here is at this point, I keep an Excel spreadsheet. Sorry, <laughs> you can't take it back with you. Remember? No, but. But Dad can. That's true. Um, but he's a the, living journal. But he's he's doing the thing where he lives every day twice. Yeah. So right. ultimately, if he does everything the same and doesn't change anything, and the only thing that's different is about what he notices, then it doesn't matter which Tim he's got there. Also, it's never said, but feasibly, James could live that last day over and over and over again. There's no restriction on him going back again. That's true. He could basically live a hundred years of that last idyllic day. Mm. This is why his life is spent reading and uh, sort of loafing about in this house, because basically the idea of, uh, of going out into the world and, and, and seizing the day and, 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 and meeting other people and uh, enjoying it seems to have, like, it's something that he did in his past. Mm. Well, this right. is, but this now is he's thing. just sort of enjoying a, a retirement with a capital R. A lot of this is well. He even says at one point, "Who retires at fifty? People like uh, time travelers with time traveling dads with cancer. With son. Yeah, exactly. That's that's like Tim says early on in the film. His dad retired at fifty, and so they get to spend a lot of time with him. Yeah. Now they find out why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the fact that he's effectively living every day twice and like he says that's he's given himself a double lifetime mm. fundamentally it's about it's not about having the time it's about appreciating the time mm. and exactly. all of that all and this is why i think for me all of the sort of very privileged angle on what they've got and what they have access to because the message is about appreciating that stuff it's less clumsy than some of Curtis's other stuff. Yeah. Right. And that sort of folds into, as you said, the theme of the entire film and the lesson that carries over into real life is by the end, after, after this day, Tim says in the narrative, in the voiceover that he just doesn't travel back anymore. And that he's like, I've gone one over, like I've gone one better than my dad in that, I don't have to go back every day because now I'm just living every day as if I have the benefit of hindsight and as if I'm as if I've already experienced the bad and I'm just appreciating the things that I have. It's and sort of as if it's him. his last day as well that mm-hmm. the um, that it's lived to its absolute fullest. Right. He's sort of trained himself to to live permanently in the moment and really, really. Be present, mm. which is is the thing that we can all sort yeah. of take away Absolutely. and and 
live as our lives. Yeah, and the the thing about the hindsight is really important as well because the one of the crucial things that is not stated explicitly, but one of the things about living the day and then going back and living the same day again is that yes, you now are able to. Um, observe the moments and appreciate them as they pass but also mm-hmm. you know they're going to turn out okay you got right. to the end of that day you know yeah, and- none of the none of those little moments that caused you tension and stress the first time around because you didn't know how they were going to turn out now you know in the case like in the example that they have give that one day with the you know with the day at work he already knows that they're winning that case. Mm. So he's able to appreciate the day and sort of not stress about it because he knows how it's going to end. He's able to sort of do stuff to make Rory laugh and stop and take in, like, isn't this station beautiful? And, like, really relish the moment when they when they pass down that non, you know, that not guilty verdict. And, like, the first time he's just sort of shake hands, shakes hands with everybody. And the second time he's, like, giving hugs and flapping the wig off of Rory's head and just really, really getting into it and savoring it. Mm, yeah. Mm. And that's... The the way it kind of felt summed up to me was that the message here is about living an intentional life, mm-hmm. about not intentional in the sense of plot things and force life to go the way you want it to go, but to embrace those things as if they were the way you wanted them to go. It's It's that old thing about it's not having what you want, it's wanting what you have. Right. And when I thought about if I went back, what would I change? Honestly, I struggle to think of much. Right. Because I consider myself to be very, very lucky in that what I've got in my life, the vast majority of it is exactly how I want it. Exactly. Yeah, it it brings to mind the, if if you wouldn't mind, I can read the last line, or I can say the last line of the film, which just, again, is the theme and is just really, really heavy and and worth paying attention to. It's Donald Gleason walking uh, Posey to school and her just adorably waving and then walking in and then coming back and waving again and walking in and coming back and waving again while he's just laughing it up and enjoying it and it says we're all traveling through time together every day of our lives and all we can do is do our best to relish this remarkable ride
and this week sees the launch of my 13th book, which I can finally reveal the full name of at long last. It's Back in Time Plus Space. Jesse has been helping me for several years now to get this thing to obey its own internal logic, and the challenge was to make it as heartfelt as possible to match the thinking behind it. As it turns out, this type of story is incredibly difficult to write, even more so if you're introducing time and dimension hopping to a world you've had going for nearly eight years. And we're doing a trilogy of time travel podcasts to celebrate. This one being the centerpiece, the delicious meaty filling of the time travel sandwich, flanked on either side with after-school club episodes on Time After Time and Somewhere in Time, which you folks on Patreon can download and listen to on your bonus feeds if you're at the $5 level. If you're at the $10 level, you can download the ebook of Back in Time Plus Space, and it will be available on Amazon this Saturday in beautiful paperback form. And of course, if you're at the $15 level, you get your name read out every show as a thank you. So to the top tier patrons, we time salute you. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasko, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And next week, Metal Gear. <laughs> that will about do it for about time. And um, folks, if you've enjoyed our chat with Jesse, you're going to want to hear his show for yourself. So tell us about Recorded Tomorrow and what people can expect. Uh, yeah. So I produce a podcast called Retor Recorded Tomorrow with my friend Jonathan. And it's all about time travel in media and the sort of pitfalls and things to do right and things to avoid in order to use as this movie does phenomenally use time travel to tell better stories um we i, I haven't put out an episode in quite a while i'm due to have another one here soon but uh, the most recent episode that as of this recording is still our um bill and ted three episode with Spiros Mihalakis, who was a consultant on the film. And uh, it's it's a it's a ride. It's really, really riveting and uh, just a just a great show. And I would encourage you to check that out again. It's called Recorded Tomorrow. You can see that find it anywhere you get podcasts or you can reach out to us on Twitter at Time Travel Pod. Thank you very much, Jesse. It has been an absolute stellar time having you on this one. Um, 
Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And again, thank you for encouraging me to watch this movie. You're very welcome. I'm, any other fantastic time travel uh, things that we uh, talk about, I'm fairly certain we'll be getting on the expert on this one. So, you um, know where to find me. Yeah. Uh, we will see you folks last week. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's yeah. out. Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 99, wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. The long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proved by scientists, whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Enjoy the power and beauty of your youth. Oh, never mind. You will not understand the power and beauty of your youth until they fade it. But trust me, in 20 years, you look back at photos of yourself and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked. You are not as fat as you imagine. Don't worry about the future, or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind, the kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Do one thing every day that scares you. Sing. Don't be reckless with other people's hearts. Don't put up with people who are reckless with yours. Floss. Don't waste your time on jealousy. Sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind. The race is long, and in the end, it's only with yourself. Remember compliments you receive. Forget the insults. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Keep your old love letters. Throw away your old bank statements. Stretch. Don't feel guilty if you don't know what you want to do with your life. The most interesting people I know didn't know at 22 what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your knees. You'll miss them when they're gone. Maybe you'll marry. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have children, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll divorce at 40. Maybe you'll dance the funky chicken on your 75th wedding anniversary. Whatever you do, don't congratulate yourself too much. Or berate yourself either. Your choices are half chance. So are everybody else's. Enjoy your body. Use it every way you can. Don't be afraid of it or what other people think of it. It's the greatest instrument you'll ever own. Dance. Even if you have nowhere to do it but in your own living room. Read the directions, even if you don't follow them. Do not read beauty magazines. They will only make you feel ugly. Get to know your parents. You never know when they'll be gone for good. Be nice to your siblings. They're your best link to your past and the people most likely to stick with you in the future. 
understand that friends come and go, but with a precious few, you should hold on. Work hard to bridge the gaps in geography and lifestyle, because the older you get, the more you need the people you knew when you were young. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. Travel. Accept certain inalienable truths. Prices will rise. Politicians will philander. You too will get old, and when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. Respect your elders. Don't expect anyone else to support you. Maybe you have a trust fund. Maybe you'll have a wealthy spouse. But you never know when either one might run out. Don't mess too much with your hair, or by the time you're 40, it will look 85. Be careful whose advice you buy, but be patient with those who supply it. Advice is a form of nostalgia. Dispensing it is a way of fishing the past from the disposal, wiping it off, painting over the ugly parts, and recycling it for more than it's worth. But trust me. On the sunscreen. Burn a candle for you 
to make bright and clear your path and to walk like Christ in grace and love and guide you into my arms into my arms oh Lord into my arms oh Lord into my arms oh Lord into my I believe in love And I know that you do too And I believe in some kind of pain Though we can't walk down me and you So keep your candles burning Make a journey bright and pure That you'll keep returning Always and evermore Into my arms Oh Lord Into my arms Oh Lord Into my arms 